kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Annie and Annie. Um, tonight, as usual, we will start with the CASA portion of the program. Good evening, Alex. Are you here? I'm here. Hi, Alex. What is new? So, you're home, so we can start with the where in the world is Alex Clark portion of the <laughs> update. Um, so, for the week of <clears throat> 3-31-2017... Welcome to the CASA update. What is new and exciting this week, Alex? Um, well, as as you said, I am I am home in beautiful scenic New Jersey. <laughs> um, yes. <clears throat> it's, rainy, it's rainy and crappy here. Uh, Same here. Spring is right around the corner. Um, but last week at this time, I was in Atlanta, and. Um, getting ready for uh, the Vapor Showcase. And uh, it was a good it was a good show, it was a good time. Uh, the Vapor awesome. Showcase always puts on a pretty high quality event. And um, the, the advocacy portion of the show was way toned down from events they've done in the past. Um, huh. At previous events, they usually have a dinner after, um, the first day and right. it's catered and there's a panel of speakers but uh i think this time they were they were kind of having trouble you know dedicating the time to you know round everybody up and get a good quality of you know group of people mm -hmm. um so the, the, that was not the focus of this event but we were still okay. able to uh, myself and amy mccann from uh safada did a, mm -hmm. a quick panel on the first day Okay. Uh, and, and it was it was it was a good discussion. Um, uh, Rod, I just know him as Rod. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's a great guy, a lot of energy, and uh, he, he makes a great MC. So he kind of directed the conversation a bit, and it went went really well. Um, nice. and, and there were some good questions from the group that were there. Um, okay. So uh, we we did you know get to speak to people, and um, and yeah, it was a good time. I also took the opportunity to um, gather up uh, kind of, so for, for anybody that was paying attention, uh, 
I guess it was early last week. Right. Or I can't remember what week it was. I can't sure. believe it's been a week since I was in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, the uh, we we had put together an engagement that we were were hoping to get out to vapor shops all over the uh -huh. place. And I know that um, I know that VTA has been helping get the word out and uh, Safada as well, getting uh, these sort of it's it's a partially pre-written letter and then a lot right. of blank space for people to include their personal stories. Yes. And so I took the opportunity at uh, Vapor Showcase to collect these stories from people. And actually, I, I had some help from um, one of Amy McCann's, um, I, I think she's an employee. Uh, she is, was very good about walking around and actually getting people you know, first to kind of come into the booth and sit down and write, and then she yes. kind of walked around and gathered up a bunch. So I have, I'm pretty sure I have over a hundred letters here nice. um, that I'm going to be sending off uh, early next week uh, to uh, Secretary Price. But we got a lot of really good, you know, handwritten stories. Um, and, and I have to say, probably the simplest and most direct one is um, I want to live longer for my children, please. Um, which I thought was, was put a nice wow. kind of cap on things. Yeah, just yes. a very simple statement. Um, and so, but there were some others, there were some people that, you know, were diagnosed with pretty serious illnesses that, um, you know, because they switched to vaping, their, their symptoms went away and they were able to get off of medication. Um, so just, you know, the, the stuff that you would expect from vapors, which is, um, you know, it's kind of mind blowing that we don't <clears throat> have this kind of this thing nipped in the bud yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'll be putting that in a package. I'll be posting that up on our site, um, okay. you know, showing people what we're sending off to price and also as a way so that, you know, the vendors that are out there that are collecting these testimonials from their customers yeah. kind of have a reference for how to send this in to Secretary Price. Um, so that's that's still something that's ongoing and um, it, it's still, you know, a good, um, you know, it, we've been talking for a while now that, you know, this is a potential, um, this is, this is a, a possible pathway to, to getting things fixed is, right. is working through the administration, working through Secretary Price um, and getting HHS to, to, you know, delay the regulations, exactly. um, you know, kind of dial it back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so we're going to continue um, with that effort and encourage everybody else to, to do that. Nice. Um, the other thing, and I, I have to mention these things side by side because okay. they're, both, they're both very important and, and you're going to hear more about this on Monday from us and have probably already seen a few things floating around um, in, the, in the past day or so uh, on social media. Um, the Cole Bishop Amendment, uh, and I want to make the distinction between the amendment and the bill. So okay. right now we're talking about the Cole Bishop Amendment, which was uh, it's been part of the, the Agricultural Appropriations Bill since last year. Um, that Appropriations Bill, including the Cole Bishop Amendment, is uh, going to be, I, I, I'm going to get, I'm going to botch this because I, the, the whole budget process is, is, is not really my wheelhouse, but right. 
all of the appropriations bills are being submitted this weekend. And okay. we, are, we are in with that group. Okay. And this is then going to go on to, I believe, the Senate. So all right. there is going to be a concerted effort, excuse me, mm -hmm. coming up starting Monday. We're going to send this out, but you know, might as well talk about it. It's the weekend. Okay. Yeah. People do open rates for emails are pretty weak on Friday oh, yeah. afternoon and into the weekend. So sure. in, order to, in order to reach as many people and activate as many people, we're going to wait until Monday and, and okay. really push on this. Right. Um, but uh, the effort will be to send emails, make phone calls, urge your Congress members to support the Cole Bishop Amendment okay. and, uh, and make sure that it stays in the budget yeah. bill. Sure. Um, and as an added bonus to publicly demonstrate their support for the bill, they can sign on as a co-sponsor to HR 1136. <laughs> so, and we, we have a kind of a, a brief window to get this done. We've got like the first two weeks in April and then Congress is in recess. Uh, people will be returning to the districts. Um, and, but uh, all of this needs to be, this, this whole budget thing needs to be wrapped up by the end of April. So. Um, there's going to be kind of a full court press here to get that included, and um, this is this is one of those important things that we need. If we can we can get that predicate date changed, um, that, that's a very important first step. So, um, and I, I mentioned those two things together because you know I think we're all very conscious of of things that happened last year where there seemed to be um, kind of competing strategies, and um, you know even though from from where from where I'm yeah. sitting, there, there wasn't really competing strategies. Um, it was, you know, just that uh, I think it got communicated in weird ways. Um, okay. the, the, these are not these are not competing strategies. These are okay. certainly slightly different. These are different approaches, but um, I, I think both of them are valuable, and we're you know trying to urge people to engage in both of these efforts. So, um, so yeah. Uh, we're going to continue sending messages to Secretary Price, and we're going to start urging congressmen, um, well, not really start, but uh, full court press <laughs> Yes. On, on the Cole Bishop language. So sure. um, that's what's going on next week. All right. Um, <clears throat> so the... Uh, um, uh, Sorry, I'm looking at a text message. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, the other stuff that happened this past week, um, we had a Tobacco 21 bill go to a committee hearing in Texas. Uh, okay. That's House Bill 1908. And um, uh, this is something that we, Casaw has been sort of following this for the past um, month or so uh, since it was introduced. And, uh, you know, it's been sort of waiting for updates and word on when this is going to, um, you know, actually start moving. Um, and Texas is, this is another one of those things that people remember uh, SB 97 that enacted some, some regulations on the industry there. Um, uh, that was a bill that, that there was like seven different versions or seven, not, not really different, but there were seven versions of that bill that were introduced. Tobacco 21 is the same way. There's like five, five different sponsors of Tobacco 21 legislation in Texas. Okay. And um, so this is the one that that, that moved uh, this this week. Okay. And uh, I, I was actually watching the, the hearing earlier today, 
Um, But uh, the result was that the bill has been left pending in that committee. I believe it's the public health committee. Um, And so it's not dead. It's, it's still very much something deserving of people's energy and focus. Um, And as I, as far as I know, people are still, you know, talking with lawmakers about this bill. Um, But uh, it's kind of a good sign that, you know, there was enough opposition to this, and I think people had, had put a, enough effort into into this that mm-hmm. that the committee decided to to kind of take their time with it. So um, that's that's good news. Yes. <sighs> oh God, what else happened? <laughs> um, you you need like a, a a legislation tree you can follow from day to day. You know. I thought. I thought you were about to say I needed to hire a legislative coordinator. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying. You need, is, well, I mean, isn't that your background? <laughs> yeah, that is my immediate background. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to do it. No, nobody else wants to do it either. So don't feel <laughs> <Sorry>. too bad. <laughs> um, the other thing is... Uh, and I, I apologize for not being completely up to date on this, but I am seeing people still urging uh, phone calls to uh, Governor Cuomo in right. New York. I believe today was the deadline to have New York State's budget all finalized. But I saw an article this morning. Um, right. I, I believe the governor or the governor's office had come out and said that they were they weren't going to hit the deadline. Um, okay. And, you know, this tax on vapor products is still in there uh, and and, and we really need to get it removed. Also, um, the prohibiting indoor use is is still in the in the budget. Um, So, (laughs) uh, you know, our uh, uh, us and the New York State Vapor Association and people have been reaching out and saying, you know, here's the governor's phone number. Give him a call. <clears throat> and tell them to remove the vapor language from the budget. So if you live in New York, um, that is the uh, engagement. And uh, I think I did this last week, but it bears repeating. Um, right. Governor, Governor Cuomo's phone number, if you ever get a pen, uh, is area code 518-474-8390. And your talking points are simple. Take vapor out of the budget. Thank you very much. Um, feel free to say, you know, vapor saved your life as well. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then just not really moments ago, but earlier this evening, but today, um, I sent out an email to folks in New Mexico, and we'll have something a bit more organized for Monday. Okay. Um, there is an indoor use ban that made it through the legislature and is headed to the governor's desk. Um, As far as I know, uh, Governor Martinez is, uh, kind of has a reputation for um, halting government overreach, government overregulation. Okay. And so from what I understand, we sort of have a friend in, in the governor okay. and uh, she, she may be very supportive of vetoing 
this bill, uh, but she needs to hear from people in New Mexico. So I sent an email out today to people in New Mexico with her phone number, urging people mm -hmm. to call. I, I don't know if they have voicemail set up right. in, the, in the governor's office. Sometimes they don't, um, but if you get that open it, give it a call, give the phone number a call uh, this weekend, uh, leave mm -hmm. a message. And then we'll be following up on Monday, uh, okay. you know, with an email campaign to okay. uh, urge the governor to veto the bill. Sure. Um, and you know, if there's enough, if there's enough people writing and calling and urging her to veto, uh, there's a good chance that it, it won't, it won't, the bill won't survive, uh, if, you know, an attempt to to override her veto. Um, awesome. So that's that's the effort there. Looking forward to next week. Um, I do know that the budget in Ohio is headed to the Finance Committee on Wednesday the 5th. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it back out to Columbus for that. There's a lot going on next week. Um, and that actually, because it's Columbus, I, I don't know why Columbus is so expensive and difficult to get to. It's a major okay. city. It's a capital mm -hmm. city. <laughs> I, I don't get it. Um, right. But it is actually very expensive for me to go there. Um, and, and we do have a lot going on. So um, I may not be able to make it out there, but uh, there is, uh, yeah, so the, the, the vapor tax is still in um, okay. the Ohio budget and uh, there's an effort there. The Ohio vapor, it's OVTA, I think, Ohio Vapor Traders, Ohio Vapor Technology Association um, uh, is, is, is pretty well organized. And I have seen posts from uh, James Jarvis um, it seems like he's spending a lot of time at the Capitol this past week. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's that. Uh, and Somebody's I haven't working on it. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, there was a good, it was a good group of people that showed up when the ways and means means committee. Um, and there's a couple of, uh, representatives on that committee that were obviously supportive of the vapor industry in Ohio. Um, they were asking good questions, and uh, I think there's actually a couple people that were on the committee that were that their their position was was shifted um, to uh, perhaps opposing the the tax. So um, there's some the start of some good news in Ohio, but um, uh, the folks there are going to be following through, and sure. um, I, I'm not sure we we may also be putting something together too. So okay, um, that's happening on Wednesday on Tuesday. There is a hearing in Maryland, and I forget which committee, but um, I forget the bill number. Um, it's, it's one of the two bills that it will impose uh, licensing requirements on, on vapor manufacturers, wholesalers, retailers. And there's still some language in there that I, I think to several people reads like uh, it would prohibit online sales and so i'm going to be working on getting that out this weekend the, the committee hearing is on tuesday um and we'll probably have a, a, a short email drive on monday um but uh, still talking with people to kind of refine that message and, and make sure, sure that we're getting the right points out there it's it's just it's complicated the language says you know uh you have to be like the registered brand agent or the brand owner in right. order to import products into the state, which is 
to me, it's, you know, not being in the industry, I don't really quite understand how that works. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can imagine it. And (laughs) I sort of imagine that if you're just a retailer, you can't, it it limits your ability to shop from whoever you want outside of the state. Basically you have to buy from a wholesaler in the state, which Mm -hmm. sets it up as, um, you know, that the industry just doesn't function like that. You know, people, right people that run these shops should be able to go to a trade show in Atlanta and we're going to negotiate wholesale deals with, with manufacturers that are there. That's, that's how people do this stuff. And, and it, <laughs> so it, it, these people are completely ignorant of how vapor businesses run. Yeah. It's another example of the state trying to shoehorn the vapor industry to existing tobacco regulations. That's exactly and, what I was going to say. I mean, you can kind of tell because they're they're making it like it's exactly the same thing and it's not at all. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, um, there's another section of the Maryland um, statutes that uh, I, I believe it was written for OTP. And this is just, it's another example of them kind of you know, copying that language and pasting in electronic smoking devices or electronic nicotine delivery systems Ugh, into exactly. the light. Yeah, it's horrible. And they type it all out. So you have to, it's, it's actually very <laughs> difficult to read. Sure. Um, I think I talked about that in a previous yeah. um, update. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll be getting likely, likely getting something out from Maryland on Monday. Um, okay. And, um, there's it's it's really i think the rest of the language no matter how poorly written the bill is it's still um somewhat agreeable i mean i don't think anybody you know disagrees with you know you know getting some sort of license or registration for a nominal fee and Uh you know being on record as you know yes i'm a business in this state and um you know i think most people are are happy to prove that they're not selling these products to minors and that they're Uh You know, somewhat compliant. They are. They they are compliant with, um, right. you know, any other regulations. So, you know, as long as the, that fee doesn't happen to be five thousand dollars a year, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's Maryland. And then, of okay. course, um, yeah, we're gonna start this effort to get Cole Bishop language kept in the budget. Uh-huh. <sighs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's a lot. I do want to say, I think, um, you know, it, we, we may have talked about this before and I, I assume that people that are, are listening um, are probably already on Twitter. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's going to be, I think, a social an important social media aspect to this. So, okay. um, I know it seems weird to just get a Twitter account just so you can tweet about vaping, but to be <laughs> perfectly honest, most of the people I follow on Twitter just tweet about vaping. Sure. Um, actually, not most, but a lot of them. Right. Uh, I, I followed some random people, and I followed Donald Trump. So uh, <laughs> that's the other bonus is that you can get, um, you know, White House memos on Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's it's fascinating so if you I don't mean, I've, I've got to say that that is really 
in the spirit of openness, that really is one way to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, it, um, it's a bit shocking and scary that the president of the United States would, would bypass the press in order to talk directly to the people. Um, you know, that the, the message does not get vetted that way. But, and there's, there's a risk there, no matter how much you like or dislike the president, that is something that, that we are not accustomed to. And there are risks involved with that. But uh, I would actually just prefer to use it as a selling point for our advocates to right. get on Twitter <laughs> and, um, and be able to use the platform to advocate for our issue uh, yeah. effectively. Um, and so, yeah, Twitter, Facebook, um, I think you're going to play a role in this next campaign. So if you're not engaged in either of those platforms, I strongly recommend it. Of course, yep. you can always um, write and send an email. And uh, if you are so inclined, sit down on a Sunday afternoon and actually put pen to paper. Um, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, you, you wouldn't think uh, social media would be as important, but it it, it is. And uh, it is interesting to see stuff tweeted so openly. Yeah. And I almost forgot. Okay. Um, two things. Two, okay. Two, one, one post that everybody should uh, check out. Okay. Uh, Brian Carter uh, put this up uh, uh, about a week ago. Okay. Um, about the You Can Quit 2 website that was okay. uh, targeted to service members mm -hmm. and, uh, or, you know, as a, put up there as a resource for to help them quit smoking. Right. Um, and uh, Brian Carter and some other people, Sally Sattel, David Sweener, uh, and some other folks interacted with the site and had a live chat feature. Right. And uh, we're asking them questions about switching to low-risk products like smokeless tobacco or, or vapor products yeah. and uh, kind of fished out some uh, anti-nicotine, anti-tobacco lies um, okay. from people working the chat stream. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty meaty and uh, interesting post. I, I recommend everybody check that out. Okay. Uh, and then uh, to end everything on a good note, um, uh, we gained some more co-sponsors for HR 1136 last week. Nice. And I believe we're up to, we have over 30 now. Yeah. Um, and I think we got a second Democrat too. Yeah, that's, that's pretty nice actually yeah. to see it this early in, to see it, um, to have actual bipartisanship is kind of nice, you know, instead yeah. of just saying, you know, a Democrat helped author this, <laughs> it's just all Republicans signing on. It's nice to see some Democrats signing on to that. It, yeah. So uh, we've, we've got, yeah. We've got three total. We got Colin Peterson from Minnesota, right. William Lacey Clay from Missouri, mm -hmm. and I butchered that. Sorry, it should be Missouri. Okay. And um, <laughs> and then we got, uh, of course, uh, Sanford Bishop from Georgia. Sure. So uh, yeah, that uh, the bill is continuing to gather some support. I know that there's probably one or two other Democrats in the wings that just need right. some more need some more contact, and and I think we might see some more. Nice. Some more bipartisanship going on here. Yeah, it's um, a beautiful which is, thing, which is good. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we sent that email out, and um, you know, check our website and see if your representative is on there, yeah. and uh, send them a thank you note. Yeah, or uh, feel free to urge your 
Congress Curtis to sign on if they haven't yet done so. Yeah, and in, in case it, it wasn't clear to people, and obviously, again, you know, we haven't done the full court press on promoting this yet, but august8th.org yeah. is still the place to go for the most current engagement on um, changing the predicate date, fixing the FDA, deeming regulations, whatever. So yes. um, right now that is actually um, the, you know, the messaging is support the Cole Bishop Amendment and co-sponsor 1136. Right. So um, by all means, if you're within the sound of my voice, go to augustates.org and yes. uh, encourage your friends to go there, tell everybody about it and, and have them send some emails. Yeah, I mean, you've got, if you vape and your parents and your partner or your husband or wife, your, you know, I don't want to say your kids, but if those people have seen improvement in your health, then they should definitely urge their uh, Congress people to sign on to support Colt Bishop and, and HR 1136. To be, I, you know, I, to, I, I tell you, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that there are some, some teenagers out there that are pretty relieved that their mom and dad aren't smoking anymore. Yeah, I know. Um, and, I just... and so I would, uh, I would say, honestly, um, if they want to send a message, they can too. I know they can't vote yet, but, um, you know, neither can the stream of kids that get dragged into committee hearings, um, you know, parroting uh, misinformation about vapor products. So it's also true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, I'm sure that we have our own constituency of young people out there, like I said, who are relieved that their parents don't smoke anymore. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with them being engaged either. And, you know, uh, the, the younger the people are, uh, when they learn about the political process and get engaged with the political process, uh, I think that's, I think that's, um, that's, that's a good thing. So. Well, it's um, definitely empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're more prepared to fight back against this nonsense when they can actually vote. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, is that it for this week, Alex, you think? I think that's it. I'm, I apologize if I missed anything. Um, feel free to shoot me a, an email at takeaction at casaw.org if I left your horrible legislation off the list, but, um, <laughs> uh, I, oh, actually, that reminds me, um, okay. there's, there's, an, there's an indoor, indoor smoking slash vaping law in Alaska that oh, that's to the house. Um, so that's, that's something else that, uh, probably, probably get out there next week. Um, so yeah, I got that in at the last minute. And I see that Jan's microphone is given out. Oh, there you are. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I um, I get complaints because I click a lot and I type a lot. I try uh, to get. I try to transcribe as much of what you're saying as you can now. So when I go put the uh, update up on, you know, because it goes first to SoundCloud and I try to type it all out with the minutes and stuff. I I won't be able to type it out with the minutes this week, but at least I'll be able to put the salient points where they go. You know, and, and it helps, I think. People know what they're looking for and they can find it easier. So, yeah, Excellent. I was, so um, thank you, Alex, for everything you do for us. And we will see you next week. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You can get Casa's 
updates, Kasa's podcast updates on kasa.org. You can get them on SoundCloud or you can go directly to iTunes and look for the kasa.org.feed and hit subscribe and they will come directly to your phone or your tablet or your iPod, whatever device you use, and you will always know what we're doing. Um, thank you for listening. Good, very? We're good. <laughs> we're good. Okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Auntie Nanny portion of the podcast. Uh, with me this evening is the very best producer that money can't buy. How are you this evening, Barry? I'm good. I've You're had a good, good week. I'm glad you had a good week. Uh, privacy in the United States did not have a great week, but no. they're not doing anything different than what they're doing your way. No. They're sort of doing the same thing. Everybody kind of is, you know? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, all, they're all trying to read all our email uh, yeah. and see what websites we're visiting. It's, yeah, well, it's information. Information is the new currency. It's really some sort of screwy system, but uh, that's kind of the way things just happen to be right now. Although, since they are that way now, <laughs> um, it, it kind of means that nobody's going to be able to hide. Nobody's going to be able to hide. Oh, and uh, hey, <laughs> Welcome to show 200 of Auntie Nanny. Indeed. <laughs> That's... God, so excited about the news. I just steamrolled over, like, kind of a milestone for me. And, uh, yeah, it's a big deal. It, it, <sighs> it, it means I've done somewhere around 150-ish, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, the sound quality much improved after you came on as my producer. I was very lucky that you had the time and you were willing to devote it to the show. I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, actually, you can you can remember back when my co-host was uh, Karen Carey. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had, well, you've kind of been my co-host for a while now. So. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just the guy who occasionally makes sarcastic comments. <laughs> Yeah, you do. Uh, or, or give people weird ideas that could possibly <laughs> go really badly wrong. Um, possibly go really badly wrong or get us all thrown in jail. Yeah. Yellow cake. Yellow cake. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to laugh. Um, so is anything jumping out of the documents that you like at all? Or should I just, should I just start wherever? <laughs> Oh, such, all, it's all, all such good news. They're all so happy. Yeah, they're all kind of linked as well. So yeah, it doesn't really yeah. matter where you start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. All the show stuff tonight is kind of related. It's all kind of about your privacy and the low down, dirty scum suckers in Congress who are not my favorite people. And, uh, you know, this is what happens when you have a majority of Republicans. And it, it, I hate to say this, you know. I know everybody won change and they thought it was going to be so great. But 
you, you almost kind of have to have a certain amount of gridlock in a political system for it to function. So, so when it's when it's um, when it's a load of Republicans, is that a collusion of Republicans? Is that the the plural? Oh, is that the political name? Oh, I thought we could call it like a felony of Republicans. Why don't we just go with that? We'll call it like a felony of Republicans and like a... <laughs> uh, a confusion of Democrats. <laughs> we could call it that. A felony and a confusion. Um, yeah, everybody thought they were getting change. And as bad as some of the stuff you thought it was under Obama was actually particularly kind of benign, really, whether you realized it or not. Um, in geopolitical circles, it was probably not so benign, although I think uh, Trump is taking drone strikes to a whole new level, which is utterly kind of terrifying. And uh, he's, taking these... pre he's taking presidential time off to a whole new level, certainly. Uh, Mar-a-Lago. Like right, see, see if you're an enemy of the U.S., just attack <laughs> at the weekend because the president's always busy. <laughs> oh, he'll be out there golfing. Yeah, you know, it. Uh, I don't know. You know, it. Uh, it, it is different. Uh, this presidency is very different. I'll put it that way. But uh, the results are are just as I imagined. There really is not so much change. And there really is a whole lot less protection for people. It's got that going for it. But we do get to find out stuff on Twitter. Like, almost instantly. So that's also interesting. Yeah, the, okay. the, early, the early morning, uh, what he's upset <laughs> about today is amusing. <laughs> uh, and, and, or worrying, depending on what he's saying. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's different all the way around. Yeah, I might just start at the top and see how much I can get through reading <laughs> without <laughs> shooting myself. Um, okay, so welcome to the fun. That is Auntie Nanny. Appeals Court officer who shot and killed innocent men in his own home cannot be sued. So that uh, that's lovely. Um, yeah, so a lot of this is about qualified immunity, although you won't know it until I start reading it. Uh, Andrew Scott and his girlfriend were playing video games in their Florida apartment late at night when they heard a loud banging at the front door. Scott, who was understandably disturbed, retrieved the handgun that he lawfully owned, then opened the door with the gun pointed safely down. Outside, he saw a shadowy figure holding a pistol. He began to retreat inside and closed the door when the figure fired six shots without warning, three of which hit Scott, killing him. Scott hadn't fired a single bullet or even lifted his firearm. The figure outside was Deputy Richard Sylvester. He failed to identify himself as a law enforcement officer at any point. He had no warrant and no reason to suspect that Scott or his girlfriend had committed a crime. He did not attempt to engage with Scott at all after he opened the door. He simply shot him dead. And Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit held that Scott's parents and girlfriend cannot sue Sylvester because the officer's conduct was not, quote-unquote, clearly illegal. The court's reasoning, qualified immunity a constitutionally dubious doctrine that bars individuals from suing the government for violating their rights unless those rights were, quote-unquote, clearly established. And what exactly constitutes a clearly established right, it's almost always possible to argue the point either way. Consider the events that led up to Scott's killing. Sylvester had been pursuing a speeding motorcyclist who he suspected 
might be the same motorcyclist who'd recently committed armed assault and battery. He had no legitimate reason to suspect this particular motorcyclist was the suspect in question. Uh, Sylvester found a motorcycle at Scott's apartment complex and decided it was the one he was looking for, even though the license plate search revealed no incriminating information. He and three other officers drew their guns and pounded on Scott's door. When Scott opened it, Sylvester shot and killed him. A district court granted Sylvester qualified immunity, holding that no clearly established law prohibited his actions. A panel of judges for the 11th Circuit affirmed, and on Tuesday, the 11th Circuit, sitting on blank, decided to revisit the panel's decision. In support of this refusal to rehear the case, Judge Frank M. Hall wrote that Sylvester's behavior was a variation on the knock and talk roll. This rule allows officers to enter private property and knock on an individual's door for legitimate police purposes. Hall reasoned that Sylvester had merely engaged in a form of knock and talk and that Scott could have simply decided, declined to open his door. Shooting Scott once he did open the door, Hall wrote, did not violate any clearly established constitutional rights. So the right not to be shot and killed in your own home is not a constitutional right. Check. I need to remember that. In dissent, Judge Beverly Martin shattered this sophistry with painful precision. Under no standard, she wrote, was it reasonable for the police to kill Mr. Scott when he answered the knock at his door to his home? He was not suspected of any crime, much less a violent crime, and he was standing inside his own home without threatening them. The police, she explained, were not engaged in a permissible knock and talk when they killed Mr. Scott. In fact, there was no talk here. This was a knock and shoot. Sylvester had no warrant and no reasonable suspicion that Scott had committed a crime. Martin thus concluded that he had clearly violated Scott's Fourth Amendment rights by conducting a warrantless raid in using excessive force. The most fascinating part of Martin's analysis centered around Sylvester's insistence that the shooting was justified because Scott opened the door while holding a firearm. This conclusion that deadly force was reasonable here, Martin noted, plainly infringes on the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Citing the Supreme Court's decision in D.C. v. Heller, which affirmed an individual right to handgun ownership under the Second Amendment, Martin wrote, If Mr. Scott was subject to being shot and killed simply because, as the district court put it, he made the fateful decision to answer a late-night disturbance door to his house and did so while holding a firearm pointed safely at the ground, then the Second Amendment and Heller had little effect. That seems exactly right to me, and it raises an important point. The 11th Circuit has now effectively found an individual's Fourth Amendment rights are diminished whenever he chooses to exercise his Second Amendment right to possess a firearm. Unfortunately, the Fourth Circuit reached the same conclusion in a dreadful ruling handed down in January. The Supreme Court should step in soon to remedy the contradiction by clarifying that the exercise of one constitutional right cannot diminish the protection of another. This is an area where liberals and conservatives should be in agreement. Qualified immunity has clearly become a significant problem in the lower courts. Just last week, another federal appeals court ruled that a homeless man had no right to sue the police officer who allowed his dog to maul him, despite knowing the mauling victim was innocent. Its rationale? Qualified immunity. The lower courts are stretching the doctrine past its breaking point. Soon, victims of police violence will almost never be able to sue the officers who violate their constitutional rights. If that's where we're headed, why even pretend that we hold those rights in the first place? So there was that bit of cheeriness. Yeah. It's 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 like so everyone's allowed to have guns, but not if you answer your door. Yes. Not if you're going to answer your door holding one. Oh, sure. So everyone needs to have the, right, mo most doors have the uh, spy hole thing. So you can yeah. see who's the other side of the door. I recommend everyone invest in the wireless 
camera that fits in those. Yeah. <laughs> so you can be well away from the actual door yeah. <laughs> and still see who's at it. Well, I mean, this is the way we're headed. And they want to spy on our internet history. And we have to have cameras outside of our door to keep an eye on what the cops are going to do. Are they going to come in and shoot my dog? Are they going to shoot me? Um, are they just, you know... Well, I mean, if there's a cop at your door with a, with a drawn weapon, which it was in this case, don't uh -huh. open your damn door. <laughs> Unless he has a warrant in his hand as well. Um, yeah. Even then well, it'd be a bit, you know... Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's time to call the cops. Hi, are you here for an actual reason? <laughs> That's uh, yeah. It's uh, it's it's interesting. So, uh, and since everything is all related, let's move on to story number two. Appeals court says right to bear arms isn't a right if cops are banging on your door in the middle of the night. I know. It's like I'm telling you the same thing over and over again. And I kind of am. From the Ninth Circuit, try to answer the door in handcuffs if possible. Department. Qualified immunity, a legal doctrine that originates from court decisions rather than statute, received another boost from the federal court system last week. Qualified immunity is the concept that allows overreaching and abusive government employees and officials to stay one step ahead of accountability. If their actions don't clearly violate established law and are present precedent, police officers, etc., can walk away unscathed from depriving of others people's lives and liberty. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has declined a chance to rehear a case in, with the, in which the Second Amendment is implicit nearly as much as the Fourth Amendment. In doing so, no further precedent will be set, which just adds to the list of actions law enforcement officers can perform and still expected to be granted qualified immunity. If there's no precedent set, it's pretty hard to clearly violate it. Handy. The short story, this is again about Andrew Scott home playing video games with his girlfriend when someone begins banging on his door. So since it's 1.30 a.m., Scott did what I would do. He uh, answered the door with a gun in his hand, pointed at the floor. He opened the door only to see a shadowy figure. I began stepping backwards. The shadowy figure was Deputy Richard Sylvester. Immediately shot him six times and killed him. Deputy Sylvester admits he never identified himself as a law enforcement officer. He also claims Scott's movement back into his apartment was perceived by him as a, Scott attempting to find cover before opening fire. Perception is all that matters, and only one person's perception really matters, Deputy Sylvester's. The district court concluded that Deputy Sylvester's split-second decision to use deadly force was objectively reasonable under the total circumstances. A reasonable perceived imminent threat of serious physical harm it was not a constitutional violation. At a minimum, no clearly established federal laws of July 15, 2012, gave fair and clear notice to Deputy Sylvester that his conduct in these unique circumstances was objectively unreasonable and unlawful, and thus no reversible error was shown. And so it goes. Cops can bang on your door in the middle of the night without announcing themselves, and it's up to you not to scare them into killing you. The Second Amendment gives you the right to bear arms, but apparently not if you're going to be startled by unannounced law enforcement at 1.30 in the morning. The dissent isn't thrilled with the decision to pass on their hearing, noting implications this has on two amendments, the fourth and the second, but especially the second. If Mr. Scott was subject to being shot and killed because, as the district court put it, he made the fateful decision to answer a late-night disturbance at the door in his house and did so while holding a firearm pointed safely at the ground, then the Second Amendment and Heller had no effect. 
The dissenting judges also delivered one biting sentence about law enforcement tactics that led to Scott being killed by Deputy Sylvester. We have never before held that police can, without justification, provoke a panic and then hide behind it by claiming that everything happened fast. It doesn't matter if the court has held on this or not. It happens all the time. Police create exigency, then use every excuse, every rights violation that occurs thereafter. Andrew Fleischman of Fault Lines describes the pitiful standard officers are being held to by our nation's own courts. For those not in the know, officers are allowed to knock on a citizen's door as long as they don't exceed the boundaries of what any door-to-door salesman or Girl Scout might normally do. Here, the court figured that it wasn't clear officers exceeded the boundaries of a knock and talk because it's typical for four Girl Scouts to take up tactical positions around your door at 1.30 in the morning, hunt on your door, and then shoot you when you answer it. As one appellate judge noted in upholding the grant, it's not like the officers had helicopters. Literally, that's the standard. No helicopters hovering overhead. Still, as far as qualified immunity analysis goes, that might be right. By refusing to review the case, the 11th Circuit has refused to discuss raising the bar for qualified immunity, much less move forward towards something that might protect so-called enshrined rights, like those multiple amendments violated in this case. Every time a court declines to re-examine a case, the QI bar remains static. Add up enough non-decisions and the bar begins to drop. Even though Deputy Sylvester was leaping from one hunch to another, even though it was one in the morning, even though he failed to consider that a reasonable person might come to his door armed in response to an aggressive late night knocking, even though a knock and talk is supposed to be a friendly, consensual encounter, and there is nothing consensual about answering your door to find a gun in your face. Deputy Sylvester had qualified immunity because there was no case exactly on point saying that he couldn't make these choices. In fact, there still isn't. He could do the exact same thing tomorrow and the day after, and there would be no legal consequences. That's qualified immunity for you. If nothing else, the court's continued deference to officer statements of fear and split-second decisions makes Blue Lives Matter's law excessively redundant. Here's Scott Greenfield's take on the consequences of yet another non-decision. That an innocent person killed because of a scared cop can't recover for the deprivation of his life is bad enough, that he was deprived of his life is even worse. That the law endorses both things independently, yet another judge made an exemption to both the Constitution and statute. Reduce the law to a farce that will employ any sophistry necessary to rationalize why cop lives matter more than anyone else. Holding an officer accountable for right violations is almost impossible. Those who obtained settlements might receive something to help with medical slash funeral bills and the feeling that they might have made a small positive difference. But the reality is every settlement comes with no admission of wrongdoing and better slash worse yet cop citizen, no procedural ruling that would make it easier to hold officers accountable for their actions in the future. I think I know what's going on here. The judges are like not being harsh or even doing their job. <laughs> Because no. they're worried in case any cops come to their house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or pull it's, them it's over just... in their car. Or it's like, no, 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 no. We've we've got to keep the cops sweet. Yeah. You know, it it's a pretty shitty time when you're living in fear because you would do what comes normally to you, that you would protect your home or protect your family or protect your girlfriend. Or try to protect your own life and that you oh and incidentally when you're employing cops that are afraid all the time literally the guy backed away from his door i often do that when i answer a door too 
you know, because, <laughs> you know, the door swings inwards. Words, yeah, yeah. I mean, so if we're gonna put I the door on the screen outwards, I can whack yeah. you with it. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and if that, if if you know the the poor little cops getting scared doing that early hours of the morning, he's in the wrong job. He shouldn't I have so. that job. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that last piece I read to you was a wonderful piece of writing from Tech Dirt. Tech Dirt, who's being sued by a man who claims he invented email, which he clearly did not and you know might go the way of the dodo which makes me really sad um little tech dirt that has nothing going for it but they're still standing up for the right to you know freedom of speech and association so i just thought i would put that out there i love tech dirt they do a great job on reporting and making it accessible to everyone okay so, heading on down the list, report says DEA doesn't even know if the billions in cash it seizes is having any impact on criminal activity from the also doesn't seem to care department. It's, it's, it really is like everything just interlocks this week. The DOJ Inspector General has released its latest report on federal civil F asset forfeiture. It's not pretty, and it confirms many of the criticisms of the program. Law enforcement agencies, including the DEA, which is responsible for nearly 80% of the $28 billion of forfeited assets over the past decade, claim the program is key in dismantling of criminal organizations. However, the facts don't back up this claim. The report opens by pointing out agencies involved in civil forfeiture seem completely uninterested in the actual pursuit of criminals. One multi-trillion dollar seizure resulted in nothing more than millions of dollars in cash being seized. Any criminal associated with the cash is presumably out there still committing criminal acts. Based on intelligence collected from the money laundering operations, other federal law enforcement agencies conducted additional investigative work, which, according to the task force, resulted in the arrest of 84 individuals and the seizure of approximately 49 million. The OIG found that BHPD received over 6 million in revenue derived in part from equitable sharing payments related to these seizures. However, according to a task force official, the task force did not file a single criminal indictment related to its money laundering investigative operations, from which the OIG can only draw this conclusion. Such outcomes can raise questions about whether seizures are intended to serve legitimate law enforcement interests or to bolster law enforcement budgets. That report focuses on the DEA as it's responsible for most of the forfeitures. Again, the claim that forfeiture is an effective crime-fighting tool isn't backed up by any data the DEA has on hand. In fact, the DEA seems uninterested in self-assessment or anything else that might undermine its claims of crime-fighting effectiveness. As the OIG points out, the DEA has no idea whether civil asset forfeiture actually works. We found that the department and its investigative components do not use aggregate data to evaluate fully and oversee their seizures operations, or to determine whether seizures benefit criminal investigations or the extent to which they may pose potential risks to civil liberties. The department and its components can determine how often seizure and forfeiture advance are related to criminal investigations only through a manual case-by-case -case review, review of component case management systems. As noted here, the DEA is not only uninterested in qualifying the results of its forfeiture, but it has expressed zero concern about potential civil liberty violations. The DEA basically doesn't know if forfeiture is good or evil. All it cares about is the money. It is so focused on seizing cash, it set up a network of informants in airports, 
train stations, bus depots, and post offices who do little more than notify the agency any time they come across currency. The DEA also does little to justify the initiation of seizures. The report notes nearly every seizure examined begins with something barely approaching reasonable suspicion. It's found that 85 of the 100 seizures occurred as a result of indeterminate operations at transportation facilities such as airports, parcel distribution centers, train stations, and bus terminals, or as a result of a highway interdiction or traffic stop. All but six of the 85 encounters or situations that led to interdiction seizures were initiated on the observations and immediate judgments of DEA officials and task force officers absent any pre-existing intelligence of a specific drug crime. The remaining six were based on pre-existing intelligence. Further, a major study of the seizures examined were seemingly carried out for no other reason than to seize cash. The DEA could verify that only 44 of the 100 seizures and only 29 of the 85 interdiction seizures had, one, advanced or been related to ongoing investigations, two, resulted in the initiation of new investigations, or three, led to arrests, or four, led to prosecutions. Another seizure detailed in the report backs up the OIG's conclusion. The DEA is interested in cash and little else. After Transportation Security Administration agents discovered the U.S. currency artfully concealed in a manufactured compartment within the pulley of a checked bag, a task force officer assigned to a DEA group responded with a drug dog to assess the bag. The dog positively alerted to the presence of a controlled substance, and the group seized $70,460 concealed in the bag in its pulley. According to the DEA's documentation, the group affected the seizure had no immediate way to contact the traveler who checked the bag. The traveler had already boarded the plane, and the ticket had not been purchased through the airline. No effort was made to alert law enforcement in the arrival airport or to stop and speak with the passenger claiming the bag. Rather, a DEA pledged agent missed receipt for the currency and the DEA contact information inside the bag, and the airline sent the bag to its final destination. The person who purchased the certificate was from was different from the traveler, but shared the same address. The DEA sent a notice of seizure to the address, but after receiving their response, the DEA took no further action, such as following up in person at the known address to interview the traveler or the person who purchased the ticket. Cats record in- indicate that the seizure did not re- receive any petitions or claims, and that it ultimately resulted in an administrative forfeiture of $70,460 to the federal government. This is a repeated pattern with the DEA forfeitures, and the OIG doesn't care for it. Even accepting that circumstances surrounding the discovery of this large volume of concealed currency justified law enforcement suspicion and seizure, I find it troubling that the DEA would make an administrative forfeiture without attempting to advance an investigation, especially considering that the DEA had opportunities to contact potential owners of the currency instead of simply providing written notice of seizure. The OIG recommends all DOJ law enforcement components, but especially the DEA, engage in better record keeping and do more to assess whether seizures are actually having an impact on criminal activity. The DEA has rejected this recommendation. It would rather continue in the same fashion it has for years. Lots of seizures, few arrests, and even fewer convictions. As the DEA sees it, the OIG's negative report is the result of the Inspector General being unable to grasp the complexities of the drug war. The Criminal Division's response to the formal draft of our report, uh, attached as Appendix 4, suggested the OIG does not fully appreciate the importance of asset seizure and forfeiture in addressing our nation's crime and illegal drug problems. The OIG begs to differ, pointing out that a well-run program can be effective in fighting criminal activity. The problem here is that the program isn't well-run 
especially in the DEA's case. The DEA can't demonstrate why forfeiture is effective, but claims that the OIG can't handle the complexities of the program. What the DEA wants is the same level of oversight it's had for years, and nearly none. Periodic reviews by the Inspector General keep pointing out problems and indications of abuse. Each one is greeted by the DOJ criminal division indifference. The component agencies care little for the rights of Americans, especially if they're carrying seizable cash. It's an ends justifies the means situation, but the DEA doesn't even care whether the ends are even being met. It just likes the means, which pads its ample budget and allows the government to seize billions in cash with minimal effort. Yeah, so to sum up that story, no, (laughs) these seizures don't reduce crime at all. Uh-huh. They just reduce your bank account if you're stupid enough to travel with money. Yep, because, yeah, I mean, it's the DAA, so it's mainly going to be drug money. People carry in cash to be laundered, for the most part, I would imagine. Of which the drug cartels and all that have more than they can launder <laughs> yeah, in, in, they do. in available time. So... Losing 70 grand, in the case of the one that's mentioned, that's probably not even a day's profit from the drug dealer that was getting sent from. Probably not. That was probably just what he had at the time the guy was leaving for the airport. Here, take (laughs) this too, you know. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, it's just a a cash cow. Yeah, it is. It's got nothing to do with reducing crime. Well... You know, it does have to do with perpetrating the drug war, though, so it's got that going for it. Yeah, because over here we've got asset seizure, but when when our police do it, Mm -hmm. uh, it's not it's not just cash. (laughs) They arrest you, they investigate you. If they think if if they improve you're a criminal and they get you in court, six months later you lose (laughs) everything: houses, cars. Everything, yeah. not just cash, you yeah. lose it all. Yeah. Hey, Jeremy, you here? I am here. You are here. Well, you missed the fun part where, uh, let's see, uh, qualified immunity, qualified immunity, and the DEA is just a cash cow. So I think I've caught you up on the salient points for the first three stories. And uh, we're rapidly, I'm just going to go straight down the line tonight. I'm not going to ask anybody who likes any particular story because they're all just so related that I'm just going to read as many as I can. Okay. Before, okay. Before the night's over. So um, you heard me saying how much I loved our Congress critters. Well, there's okay. a reason for that. There's a reason for all of this. For sale, your private browsing history. The U.S. House of Representatives voted Tuesday to eliminate ISP privacy rules following the Senate vote to take the same action last week. The legislation to kill the rules now heads to President Donald Trump for a signature or veto. The White House issued a statement today supporting the House's action and saying that Trump's advisors will recommend that he sign the legislation that would make the death of the Federal Communication Commission's privacy rules official. The rules issued by the FCC last year would have required home internet and mobile broadband providers to get consumers opting consent before sharing or selling web browsing history, app usage, and other private information with advertisers and other companies. But lawmakers used their authority under the Congressional Review Act 
Pass a joint resolution ensuring that the rules shall have no force or effect and that the FCC cannot issue similar regulations in the future. CRA resolutions require the president's signature and several Republican attempts to undo Obama administration regulations were vetoed by President Obama. But with both Congress and the White House now in Republican hands, Trump yesterday signed four resolutions to remove recently issued regulations. Republicans argue that the Federal Trade Communica uh, Commission should regulate ISP privacy practices instead of the FCC. But the resolution passed today eliminates the FCC privacy rules without any immediate action to return jurisdiction to the FTC, which is prohibited from regulating common carriers such as ISPs and phone companies. If Trump signs the resolution to eliminate privacy rules, ISPs won't have to seek customer approval before sharing their browsing histories and other private information with advertisers. The House vote was 215 to 205, with most Republicans voting to eliminate privacy rules and all Democrats voting to preserve them. Um, I could give you the full vote rules. They're available here, um, which I'm sure will just give everybody a really happy moment. It gave me a really happy moment. Um, that was pretty terrible. Uh, so back to the happy, happy story. Uh, the Senate vote last week was 50 to 48, with lawmakers voting entirely along privacy lines. The heck are you thinking? I have a, somewhat, I have a simple question. The heck are you thinking? Representative Michael Capano, a Democrat of Massachusetts, said in a debate on the House floor, what is in your mind? Why would you want to give up any of your personal information to a faceless corporation for the sole purpose of them selling it? Give me one good reason why Comcast should know my mother's medical problems. Capano said that ISPs can discover consumers' medical conditions by seeing what illnesses and drugs they search for on the internet. Just last week, I bought underwear on the internet. Why should you know what size I take or the color, Capano said. ISPs could take that information and sell it to underwear companies who might show him advertisements, he said. These companies are not going broke. The rest, the internet, is not in jeopardy, Capano said. Is none of their information. It's none of their business. Ponerko uh, challenged Republicans to have, leave Capitol Hill for five minutes and find three people on the street who want their ISPs collecting and selling their browsing histories. Representative Mike Doyle, Democrat of Pennsylvania, said that no company will even put its name behind this effort, instead relying on lobbyists. Lobbyists make the bogus claims that having actual protections will cause consumers confusion and that the only way to clear up this confusion is to have no rules at all, he said. No consumers have supported getting rid of privacy rules, Doyle said. The rules are not strict since they don't prevent ISPs from tracking customers and serving up personalized advertisements as long as they ask customers for consent first, he said. ISPs would simply have to ask permission, protect people's data, and tell them if it gets stolen, he says. While Republicans claim the rules would cause customers' confusion, Actual consumers have come forward to say they've been confused by the FCC rules, Representative Frank Malone from New York said. Private browsing mode won't help. House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi, that fucking cunt, I'm sorry. Um, when I say her name, that automatically comes out of my mouth and it has for a long time. Uh, pointed out that ISPs can track customers' web browsing even when they enable their private browser mode, which does not encrypt internet traffic. Google, for example, says that Chrome Incognito mode prevents the Chrome browser itself from having, from saving the sites you visit, but that does not stop ISPs and websites from seeing which websites you visited. Americans' private browsing history should not be up for sale, Pelosi said. 
Overwhelmingly, Americans do not agree with Republicans that this information should be sold. Uh, Pelosi also said, uh, note, uh, Pelosi is a real privacy pirate herself. I don't think she's the spokesperson I would have chosen. Dem should have chosen Ron Wyden. That's my take on her. <clears throat> ISPs can see every bit of data sent in and out of customers' homes, even when you use encryption. ISPs can still capture data about whom you're talking to or what sites you're visiting, said Representative James Lovergan. This data is sensitive, and consumers have a right to decide whether or not they can share or be monetized. GOP rules unfairly skew advertising market. Representative Michael Burgess, Republican of Texas, said that the FCC rules unfairly skew the market towards social networks and search engines, which would have more ability to collect and use consumer information for personalized advertising. The Federal Communications Commission privacy rule arbitrarily treats internet service providers differently than the rest of the internet, he said, calling the rules an example of government intervention in the free market. The FCC's privacy rules also include new data breach notification requirements. Burgess complained that this might result in more frequent breach notifications for consumers who suffer from notification fatigue. Um, let me just ask everybody here, let's just take a quick poll in here. If you've had a data breach, wouldn't you want to know? Yeah. Barry? Oh, just a bit, yeah. Yeah, me, me too. I really don't fucking like reading about somebody's site being hijacked that I have information on. You know, I, I that is not a happy fucking day for me. Having to get online, having to change all my fucking passwords over and over again. It's really quite fucking annoying. But knowing about it before I have to fucking read it on the internet is a little bit better for me. Now, I, I don't care about notification fatigue. As a real human being who is affected by this, I, I like knowing. I don't think there's such a thing as notification fatigue. Okay. Uh, there were resolutions to eliminate privacy rules were introduced in the Senate by Se Senator uh, Jeff Flake. What a name. And in the House by Representative Marsha Blackburn. Blackburn said the FCC rulemaking was just another example of big government overreach. She also said that the FCC unilaterally swept jurisdiction from the Federal Trade Commission. This was a reference to the FCC's decision in February 2015 to reclassify home and mobile ISPs as common carriers. The reclassification allowed the FCC to impose net neutrality rules, but it also stripped the Federal Trade Commission that's authority to cover ISPs because the FTC's charter from Congress prohibits the agency from regulating common carriers. Blackburn argued that the FCC can protect customer privacy on a case-by-case -case basis without specific privacy rules because Title II of the Communications Act lets the FCC protect, I'm sorry, prevent common carriers from engaging in unjust or unreasonable behavior. Representative Greg Walden of Oregon said there should be one standard for internet service providers and websites enforced by the FTC the FTC rules have the potential to stifle one of the most innovative sectors of our nation's economy, and it's consumers who will suffer, he said. The FTC regulates web companies like Google and Facebook, but action by the FCC or Congress would be needed to let the FCC regulate ISPs as well. Burgess called the FCC's rulemaking a duplicate regula regulation, but Representative Anna Shu, uh, of California said the House's action totally wipes privacy protections for consumers on the internet. Because the FTC has no actual authority over ISPs, there are no duplicative, duplicative 
regulations that will protect consumers in the absence of FCC rules, she said. All the information that you give to your internet service provider, whether it's Comcast, whether it's cable, charter, AT&T, and when you pay a pretty big bill to, they can take all of that information that they have and use that information to sell it to the highest bidder, as she said. As she said, Republicans may have a lack of understanding of how the internet works and how all of our constituents benefit from these protections of our privacy. Eliminating privacy rules would make ISPs more powerful than Amazon and Google, Representative Jared Paulus said. ISPs could sell consumer information as they see fit, without restriction, without even requiring users to opt in. Internet service providers are a gateway to the internet. They do not own the internet, Paul said. Polls also argued in favor of data breach notifications, saying they provide important alerts to consumers whose information is exposed to hackers. Paul said the CRA re resolutions would impose long-term harm because it prevents the FCC from issuing similar regulations. Um, yeah, I'm going to skip down a little bit. Um, I stand by what I said a long time ago. If you want to do something evil, hide it inside of something boring. ISPs see virtually all your internet activity. The opt-in rules weren't scheduled to take effect until December 4th, 2017, but eliminating the rules now would let home internet and mobile internet providers know they won't face any major restrictions as they expand into online advertising. For more on eliminating rules affects internet users and how you can hide yourself in the internet traffic. There's actually an article um, from Ars Technica that I'll stick in the chat and uh, you really fucking good luck. VPNs offer some minimal protection. There's other things you can do, but there's not a lot of hiding. Uh, okay. According to the record, only three companies, Google, Facebook, and Twitter, have third-party tracking, tracking capabilities across more than 10% of the top 1 million websites, and none of those have access to more than approximately 25% of web pages, the FCC said in privacy rulemaking last year. In contrast, a bias broadband internet access service provider sees 100% of a customer's unencrypted internet traffic. Internet users have much more control over web tracking by web third parties than over tracking by bias providers via browser extensions and other tools, the FCC said. The consumer relationship with websites is also much different than ISPs. For example, customers generally pay a fee for their broadband and therefore do not have reason to expect the broadband service is being subsidized by advertising revenues as they do with other internet ecosystem participants, the FCC said. In addition, consumers have a choice in deciding each time whether to use and thus reveal information to an edge provider, such as a social network or search engine, whereas it's not an option with respect to their bias provider when using the service. Okay, this just kind of goes on and on and on. I stand by if you want to do something Evil, hide it inside something boring. So we all knew what happened, right? Anybody yeah. here with me? Okay. Uh, we all knew that, you know, it, it's part of some weird digital economy thing that's been happening. I'm a very am I right with that? They're doing the same thing where you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, yeah. People's privacy no longer matters a shit to any other governments. Well, it, it doesn't, your privacy doesn't matter, and it, it doesn't matter if you have the constitutional right to protect yourself from being gunned down in your home at 1.30 in the morning um, anymore. So, you know, it's, it's 
America, fuck yeah. It makes me think of Minority Report. <laughs> that one part was through. Right? Oh, Jeremy's breaking up. Yeah, it just makes me miserable. This kind of thing just makes me really sad. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. It, when when the Democrats are saying, oh, I don't think the Republicans know how the internet works. It's like, well, one, duh, neither do you. <laughs> and two, they don't care. Same as you. The Democrats are only doing this yeah. Because it's a privacy thing. Yeah. They don't know the details any more than, than the Republicans well, do. So. I mean, and Pelosi was like, Pelosi has always been the worst one. For her to stand up there and say, oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I know. We're not hearing him either, Margo. Sorry. Um, for them to stand up there and put her forward to make a speech is the ultimate hypocrisy. How that woman has survived in Congress so long is just... It surprises me. It really does. Like I said, the only person qualified to make that speech is Ron Wyden, who I don't agree with on everything and, in fact, disagree with on, like, 99% of things. But when it comes to your privacy, Ron Wyden has always tried to have your back. So, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. I, I just don't know what the fuck they were thinking. The, the, uh, there were brown envelopes. What, what do you mean <laughs> thinking? <laughs> ah, very true. Very well, they true. they got lobbied. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, I can't say anything. It's not like the vaping industry doesn't have lobbyists, which we do. Yeah. But I I don't know that we're trying to steal something away. We're not like we're not like trying to steal fire from the gods. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 yet again, right? Your government structure. <laughs> Federal Trade Commission should have nothing to do. With anything internet. That's not the trade. It's in the title. It's to do with trade. FCC. Communications. Federal Communications Commission. Yeah. Yeah. It's them. It's them that deal with it. Right? <laughs> it's that simple. Trade has nothing to do with a media service that's communication. I mean, yeah, it's like just Trump. insane. Yeah. Like Trump's already been, he's already been uh, telling, you know, federal uh, departments, hey, look, stay in your lane and focus on your shit. Stop overreaching, stop overstepping, stop worrying about what everybody else has got in their backyard. Worry about what's in your front yard. Well, I mean, and that's true, but this whole thing has just been a mess. I mean, and it's been a mess since really, let's look at it. Quite honestly, the Democrats decided to pass this stuff last year. They decided to take our our protections from the FCC and transfer. It's just a fucking mess. This whole thing is a fucking mess. And really, all this shit should just be opt-in. Do you want Google to know your you know, favorite snack food so that we can develop more snack food advertisements for you to see, you know, like, you know, gum and nuts together at last. I don't know. Um, just making shit opt in would be so much easier. But the fact that, you know, Comcast knows all this shit about me. Well, as far as I'm aware, it still holds in Europe, including 
we're still in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to opt in. <laughs> they can't just automatically take your data. There's got to be a little ticky box saying, "Yes, I agree to share this information." I understand I'm... that. I understand that this website uses cookies, and I am fine with it. And and that's on your blog is even over there. Yeah. Yeah. Hide something evil inside something, something boring. boring. And we'll all be members of the human sentai pad. You know, it, <laughs> it uh, this is just, um, I guess this is the new normal. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a fan of it. I'm not loving it. Um, no, it's not fucking normal. That's the problem. <laughs> These fuckers. All right. So the Republicans, they only give a shit about the money. And the mm-hmm. Democrats only give a shit about wanting to say, hey, we care about your privacy. Um, no, you didn't, because that's why you had overseers out in the fields way back when out there, you know, whipping, you know, cracking whips on people. You, you don't give a shit about privacy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just thankful. your privacy. I'm just thankful that it's slightly less complex in the UK. We have (laughs) one regulator. (laughs) (laughs) Ofcom. That's it, right? So anything yeah. to do with communications, Ofcom. You know what's weird, though? There like, used to be two, but they merged them, oddly okay. enough, because they were like, this is confusing for people. We should just have one regulator dealing with internet on right. phones. Because right. uh, there used to be one for phones, one for internet. But they and, merged them. Well, yeah, but because we've merged our use of them. You know what I mean? They're a, they're a, they're a multiple choice thing now. You know, yeah. it's uh, it's it's very it's it's a really different world. Uh, by next week, but, maybe 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 it'll be somebody else doing it. You know, you'll have uh, what the Texas the, Rangers looking after your uh... <laughs> the office of Inspector General's God. I hope not. Um, actually, you know, I don't know who's actually qualified to do this. I mean, I don't like government regulation like at all. I'm like ready to take government and go fuck you guys and throw you in the trash because <laughs> everything you touch, you fuck up. And that's the problem. That, that's, why I, that's why I posted that comment that one day uh, my post said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much backing out of the Republican party because they don't, how can I say this? They're not representative of the party that I grew up with anymore. They don't espouse the same values anymore. And that's why I'm moving more libertarian. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'm in, confused. In, you used the word values in relation to politics. <laughs> well, values mean you know positive. Your values. value, your values, your yeah, values. Exactly. I mean, I have they values. I have morals. They don't represent your views anymore. No. You know, politics in general has not represented my views for. I would say I think vaping, just in general, makes more libertarians than anything else on the planet. Yeah. And that's because the government can't wait to take it away from me. We don't know if it's safe. Well, fuck you. Who asked you to be my parent? And that's the problem with the government. You know what I mean? In a nutshell. Everybody, ha- everybody had a fucking parent. Everybody. You had one. I had one. Barry had one. You know, whether you liked them or got along with them or approved of them or not is completely irrelevant. You are a grown-ass adult. Leave me alone. That's basically what it comes down to, and they don't want to. 
And so legislating survival, let the morons kill each other. Or themselves. Or themselves. Um, You know, I've always thought society would be really interesting if you took the warning labels off of, you know, cell phones, not to use them in the shower, which I'm sure is fucking coming thanks to the numbnut that charged his phone while he was bathing. Fucking idiot. Um, Or not to use a blow dryer when you're sleeping because you know some fucker did that. Don't kill I've got a new idea for you. I've got a new idea for politics in the US. Sure. Whenever they're passing a bill through Congress, they have to do battle royale. (laughs) Last one standing, whoever whichever party he belongs to, right, it goes their way. Uh, Yeah, you know, know. and and no firearms, knife fight only. Well, no, no, no. If it's going to be a firearm, it needs to go back to the old flintlock, you know, pistols. It was single shot, had a range of about 10 feet. Yeah. It took 20 minutes to reload. Um, uh, no, no, no. That's a bad well, idea because what yeah, about, da- no, no, guns and blunderbuss. Run, running Man. Running Man is a great idea. When they want to produce new legislation, they have to compete in Running Man. Everybody's seen the film. It's a great yep. idea. I like it. Yeah, they could, you know? they could title it Wheezing Man or Wheezing Person <laughs> if you want to be. Because most yeah. of them don't look very healthy. Uh, no, they don't. I, there's a reason why you don't stay in politics for 80 years, fucktards. You know? Christ. Oh, you know. Come on now. It's just, it's, this is too much. They're doing too much. And then they're trying to change what they're doing midstream where they've actually done something semi good. They're trying to change that so they can make money on it. it it's just it's just ugliness and extreme. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, there are better things, to, ways to do things that don't involve the government, but here we go. So since we've heard about the lack of protections we are now going to have over our privacy, I think this is interesting. The first horseman of the privacy apocalypse has already arrived. Verizon announced plans to install spyware on all its Android phones. Okay, so this gives Can You Hear Me Now a whole new fucking meaning. Within days of Congress repealing online privacy protections, Verizon has announced new plans to install software on customers' devices to track what apps customers have downloaded. With this spyware, Verizon will be able to sell ads to you across the internet based on things like which bank you use and whether you've downloaded a fertility app. Verizon's use of App Flash, an app launcher, and web search utility that Verizon will be rolling out to their subscribers, Android devices, in the coming weeks, is just the latest display of wireless carriers' stunning willingness to compromise the security and privacy of their customers by installing spyware on end devices. The App Flash <clears throat> Privacy policy published by Verizon states that the app can be used to collect information about your device and your use of the app flash services. This information includes your mobile number, device identifiers, device type and operating system, and information about the app flash features and services you use and your interactions with them. We also access information about the list of apps you have on your device. Troubling as it may be to collect intimate details about what apps you have installed, policy also illustrates Verizon's intent to gather location and contact information. 
AppFlash also collects information about your device's precise location from your device operating system as well as contact information you store on your device. And what will Verizon use all of this information for? Why targeted advertising on third-party websites, of course. AppFlash information may be shared with the Verizon family of companies, including companies like AOL, who may use it to help provide more relevant advertising within the AppFlash experiences and in other places, including non-Verizon sites, services, and devices. In other words, our prediction that mobile internet providers would start installing spyware on their customers' phones has come true less than 48 hours after Congress sold your personal data to companies like Comcast and AT&T. With the announcement of AppFlash, Verizon has made it clear that it intends to start monetizing its customers' private data as soon as possible. What are the ramifications? For one thing, this is yet another entity that will be collecting sensitive information about your mobile activity on your Android phone. It's bad enough that Google collects much of this information and already and blocks privacy-enhancing tools from being distributed through the Pace Play Store. Another company that automatically tracks its customers doesn't help matters any. But our biggest concern is the increased attack surface an app like AppFlash creates. You can bet that with Verizon rolling this app out to such a large number of devices, hackers will be probing it for vulnerabilities to see if they can use it as a backdoor they can break into. We sincerely hope that Verizon has invested significant resources in ensuring that AppFlash is secure because if it's not, the damage to American cybersecurity could be disastrous. Verizon should no. immediately... <laughs> no, let them, let them hack it. Let them show that every... And Verizon will fold. You say that, but we have a country full of too big to fails. This is why we bailed out banks. This is why we bailed out AIG and on and on and on. When you said to your Congress critter, because I can't call them people, they're not fucking people. They're, they don't act like any people I've ever seen, and they sure as fuck don't represent me, especially my weasel representative Marco fucking Rubio does not represent me in any way, shape, or form. I'm sorry. Um, on, on, they... the, on the plus side, right? They're doing this on Android phones, which is a laugh and a half because what's the first thing I do when I get a new Android phone? Root it. I root, root it and shit. check what extra Version. stuff has been put on the phone on top of oh, yeah. the operating system. If there's mm -hmm. extra stuff, I reflash to a bare ROM and mm -hmm. yeah. You, you customize <laughs> your own ROMs. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, and that's the way to do it if you're technical. If you're not technical, and let's just say I'm a technical idiot, okay? I mean, I know how to operate VPNs. I know how to get around without being seen. I know which apps to use. I know how to hide with Ghostery. I know how to use, you know, EFF apps. I'm really good with all this stuff. I'm really good at hiding in the shadows. I don't know how to reflash a phone. And I know there's guides out there, but they need to be... There needs to be video. Right. I think it is, is the one. Right, but I'm saying somebody, very, somebody, very, should do video <laughs> tutorials for idiots like me. There's lots of them already on YouTube. <laughs> I know, but I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, there are certain things that I think would be really interesting to people now to see. And I, I think there are some people, very, who are really capable of doing that, unlike me. But I'm just saying, yeah, the, the Congress. Anyway, uh, to go back to my ripping on Congress and calling them critters because I can't call them people. Um, 
I'm, I'm just getting a link now for something, but keep okay. talking. <laughs> they completely disregarded how we felt about bailing out the banks and letting the car companies fold under. Do you really think they would let AT&T or Verizon fall? I mean, my God, this is their back door in our communications, especially Verizon. And we know all that from stuff that uh, Scahill leaked, not leaked, but found and published in The Intercept a long time ago. And before that, just published on his own books he's written. We know that from stuff Bruce Schneider has talked about on his blog. I mean, the amount of information that the ISP carriers were giving to the intelligence agencies was astounding. They want to take that same information that they gave to the intelligence agencies, which I'm not comfortable with them knowing shit about me, you know, uh, personal stuff about me, what bra size I wear, whatever they might know about me from my emails or, or what have you. I'm not comfortable with them having that information, but they want to take and give that same information to fucking advertisers. And Congress, for the most part, is okay with that. Um... I don't know. And incidentally, XDA forums is running slow, probably in light <laughs> of Trump and his little speech and this Verizon announcement. As uh, everybody rushes to secure their phones from their phone company. Well, um, I mean, don't don't you want to? I do. I, I want to know that my shit is secure. I'm sorry. There's stuff about me you don't need to know. This is on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need well, to know it. I changed phone companies recently. Um, there were a mm -hmm. couple of reasons. One, price. Another one. Uh, the company I was with, the app they have for keeping track of your usage mm -hmm. wouldn't work on a rooted phone because they claimed yeah. that made the phone insecure. <laughs> I had rooted my phone <laughs> to put security software on it yeah. that needs root access. Mm -hmm. I told them this. And they're like, no, 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 rooting your phone's <laughs> dangerous. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, get lost. You know, you Change know, companies. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's the thing, not to be a, a jerk or anything. This is why I think mesh nets are kind of the way of the future. I just don't know that we're at the point where a mesh net is going to be able to communicate, to compete with the amount of information you can find out there in the general larger internet. You know what I mean? We're not there yet. We're getting there, but we're just not there yeah. yet. And I think it's definitely something to invest in. I mean, I have actually, I have a couple of MeshNet apps on my phone. They're they're really kind of cool. You know, it forms a network between you and other people. And even if there's no internet access, really, you can still communicate. It's it's um the technology is pretty rudimentary to start with, but all stuff is. And I think that's kind of in a way where we're going to be heading as far as with the future. Do you know what I mean? We're going to be heading backwards a little bit to try and take back some of our privacy and, and that sort of thing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, yeah, for, for a start, most people I know who have an Android uh, don't use the inbuilt dialer or messaging. If they're the, All my IT friends, certainly. Signal. They tend to use signal, yeah. Yeah, fuck yeah. End to end of course encryption. You use signal. You know. Exactly. Hey, the one thing we know, whether you believe Edward Snowden, whether you believe Thomas Drake, whether you believe 
a lot of these whistleblowers, one thing we know from everything they've released, encryption makes it harder for the governments to spy on you. And if it makes it harder for the governments to spy on you, it's going to make it harder for the advertisers to spy on you. And that can only be a good thing. And I think people are are waking up to the idea now that if you want privacy, you can't wait for the government to legislate it for you. Yeah, you that, have that, got to go out also, and protect yourself. A, a little hint to any person, when you buy a new Android phone, put a fresh, um, some, um, a fresh mem memory card in it. Not, okay. not one from the previous phone. Copy the data off the card, blank the card, stick it in a new phone, mm -hmm. and encrypt it before you start adding any of the apps back on, or oh, any yeah. of your data. Because it works a lot faster that way. That's the neat thing. I mean, you can, you can encrypt. Most people don't know you can encrypt your computer. Yeah. I mean, Windows, as much as they suck, comes with the ability to touch a button and encrypt your machine. You know, and Windows sucks. I'm not recommending you encrypt your machine using Windows. I am saying if you're a techno tart, there's a way to do it. And at least give yourself some rudimentary privacy. Yeah. And it's through Windows 10, which, you know, not a fan of. They are like a malware advertising disease more than they are a search engine. Um, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows this about Windows. So there are things you can do to protect yourself. But, um, yeah, I, I got really hot when I saw what they were they were going to allow to happen. Yeah, when, when that announcement came out of Trump, <laughs> yeah, you must have been steam coming out of you. you know? I, I'm surprised you couldn't hear me there. <laughs> <laughs> because I do, I, I keep my phone on me all the time. Um, mostly, I, I use it to listen to podcasts. Um, and I decided since I'm so immersed in news, I don't really do the news podcasts. I listen to things like the bright sessions, the black tapes, um, Tannis, um, the box podcast. I, I listen to stuff that's radio dramas. That's what I listen to. Um, I find that very satisfying. So I've just got like, I've got signal. I've got a couple of MeshNet apps. I've got an encrypted phone, right? But I also have, um, I run my own search spiders um, yeah. just for news. And uh, whenever stuff comes up about privacy, it dinks me. <laughs> yeah, I was at work when that announcement got made. And um, I, I, I had to go outside because I was, was going to blow in work and, and I didn't really need to be doing that in front of people. Well, as much as you heard me say, fuck tonight. To, you, you really should have heard me at to work say, To say my phone has some security on it might be understating. <laughs> if it yeah. detects a new Wi-Fi, it, freaks. it Mine brings too. up a red screen warning. Yeah. <laughs> if it detects a new mobile phone mast, it brings up a red screen warning. Yeah. If you try to connect to either of these, you get a series of red screen warnings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, same here. It just loses it. And what's really weird is is my phone. My home provider is Comcast. And I'm not happy about that. But like I've said before, I, I can't even get, 
I couldn't even get telecom service out here. So like my phone had to go through Comcast and everything just because I'm located in the semi booms. Even though one street away, there's like five telephone companies you can pick from. Just not my street. Okay. Whatever. So my phone knows that Comcast is my home provider. It keeps trying to get me to log in. <laughs> log into Comcast um, when I'm out for any reason. They, you know, they don't need to know, which is where I'm heading to the point of they don't need to know. And I probably only switch my phone on to listen to a podcast. That's all I use it for. Check the time. Listen to podcasts. Maybe look at the news. I, I'm not a heavily immersive user. Well, I mean, my but, phone's on 24-7, but it's on, it'll only connect to the internet when I'm not actually in my house. Yeah. Oh, well. Say that, I turn it on once a day <laughs> to let it update apps. But, yeah, then I turn the Wi-Fi and then the 4G off. <laughs> Unless yeah. I'm going out. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Marco, there's a couple of really good guides, and I will grab those and link them, and I will link you to them. Um, I think in the next few weeks we're probably going to be talking about jailbreaking Android, which is not <laughs> something is not something I'm proficient in, but I'm going to learn. We'll talk about my mistakes and uh, things you can do to improve your privacy because yeah. fuck these people. Really do careful research them. and only go to re the reputable. reputable sites like the big ones yeah. like SDA, yeah. XDA, sorry, and yeah. there's a couple of others because. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people give advice on, and this is how you do this on your phone, and then yeah. your phone gets bricked. Yeah, and you don't want that. No, you don't want that at all. But, I mean, this is why people root their devices. You know, yeah. it gives you security. You can take, and what's really fucking interesting, if you ever buy um, a tablet from Amazon, any kind of tablet, yeah. you know, it kind of already has the Amazon app on there. Yeah. It's real fun to root those. That's fun to watch like the devices just kind of like lose their shit because well, I did, Yeah, I, I, I did mine, it wasn't very happy. No, they're not happy. <laughs> they're not happy. Every not time it all. updates it tries to change things back, but it can't. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it wants to it wants to keep phoning home. It wants to be like your toaster. Um, so this week I had to replace my relatively new oven, um, because it wasn't keeping temperature, uh, despite even having the chip fixed. Um, so I went with a really older oven and I'm perfectly happy with it. It's less invasive. It's not phoning the internet and telling it when I'm having problems, it's not leaking my Gmail information or what have you. All over the internet. Not, not really deciding you've put in the wrong information on the timer, yeah. so undercooks your food. Uh, yeah. Oh no! You, once you once you root that, Margot, that bitch is gone. Although I will tell you, I don't like Alexa. I don't want her in my fucking house. But having older people here, like they have, they have an Alexa. Because if I'm not home, and and this is really funny, I have an old elderly dog. Right, uh, he is very ill. I mean, ill to the point where we have to like pick him up and, and take him outside. And he breathes really heavy, but they say he doesn't have congestive heart failure, and I, I think that's wrong. I, I worked for a veterinarian for a really long time. I know what congestive heart failure sounds like in a dog, and I think my dog has. Um, 
and he lays in my mom's room where the Alexa is. I made her put it in her room because I don't want it out on the main floor. Listening to you. Yeah, yeah, we're good with that. I I just, no, no. You know, it's bad enough. Like, when Dan and I are in the car, he's like, oh, I got to find this place. I'm like, you know, let me look it up. And he's like, no, he picks up his phone and uses, like, Google Voice. And I'm like, fuck, I wish you wouldn't do that. Yeah, I have no trust in voice-activated systems being Scottish. He's like, Um, right, he's like, well, why? I'm like, because. Have you read the privacy policy for what they can do once you've turned that on? And he's like, no. I'm like, they can watch you 24-7, pretty much. Listen to you turn on, you know, turn on the mics and and all the stuff. Stuff we know they're already doing, but they now have permission to do Your device learns your voice. Yeah, no thank you. Yeah, that could cause problems for somebody in the future. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is Alexa, like when my dog is really panting really loud, Alexa comes on and is like, do you need assistance? Should I call 911? So Alexa has a place, just not with anybody who's un- not unwell. Do you know what I mean? Or, or elderly or might not be able to make it to a phone. Those people have a use for Alexa. I have no problem with her being in those homes. I think they... I think it can genuinely increase the quality and quantity of life for elderly, sickly people who don't have anybody to take care of them. I, I really do. I think they're great for that. I just don't fucking want that bitch in my house. Yeah, yeah. Half, so. Most of the people that have um, Alexa, either through you know Amazon Dot or whatever, most of what most of the time, what it's doing is listening to whatever it is you're listening to. So yep. basically, you've paid all this money for this device that is watching TV with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's I I don't know. I, like I said, I think it has a usefulness, just not for me. So, okay, let's go back to the document because I think I went off for a really long time here. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Internet noise cycles to random websites to protect. To protest snooping ISPs. This week, Congress voted to allow internet service providers to sell users web browsing histories, rolling back FCC rules passed under the Obama administration. Activists have already roundly criticized the vote as a win for telecom industry eager to help sell targeted ads. Built by technologist Dan Schultz, a tool called Internet Noise will send random searches through a browser window. Okay, um, hang on. Okay, I'm going to grab this for you guys in the chat. Send random searches through a browser window, introducing some chaos to the tracking and ad profiling process. That can only be a good thing. If it's not reliable, you are not going to get good information. And why anybody thought this wouldn't happen is retarded. I don't know. Um, introducing some chaos to the tracking and ad profiling process. When I gave it a shot, I got information on a Massachusetts diner, a copy of an inscrutable scientific paper, a New York Times article from last year, and Google results for Skylight Babies. And Schultz notes on the website for the tool, internet noise is a form of protest and even a fun spin through the weirder corners of the web, but it is emphatically not a way to shield your personal privacy on the internet. The website won't be too disruptive 
good advertising profile, especially if you're still spending the majority of your time with your usual browsing habits. But it is a clever way of bringing the attention to the issue. Uh, meanwhile, if you're interested in a more effective approach, consider a VPN. Um, so, and this is for Margo. The government won't protect your internet privacy, so here's how you do it yourself. The big money of the internet comes from tracking selling user data to better targeted ads. Do one search for power drills and you'll be inundated with ads for related products across your whole web experience. Those are targeted ad dollars at work. This is at the core of Facebook and Google's business models and for good reason. The amount of money companies spend advertising online is set to outpace money spent on ads on television this year. Internet service providers are eager to get in on the action. Once existing privacy protections for users are no longer an obstacle. Then. Yesterday, by a vote of 215 to 205, the House of Representatives vote to strip privacy safeguards from people who use the Internet. The measure already cleared the Senate with a narrow majority, and experts expect that President Trump will sign the bill into law. When he does so, ISPs, the companies that connect people to the Internet, will be able to collect and sell information about specific users without their permission. More specifically, the bill nullifies a set of rules put in place by the FCC. Collectively, the rules, which have been in the works for months and years, are built on prior rulemaking and are newly formalized. The FCC published the final version last December, and most took effect in January, with one part coming into effect this March. Some of those protections provided by these rules are, technologically speaking, ancient, like extending the 1934 privacy requirements originally written for telecommunications companies to also cover broadband internet service. Modern editions deal more explicitly with consumer consent and privacy online. The rules mandate that ISPs do three things. Customers know about and opt in or out of any sharing of their information, get affirmative consent when offering consumers financial incentives in exchange for selling their data, and not offer the cheapest service to people on the condition that they surrender privacy rights. Without these measures in place, ISPs will be freed up to turn user data into a lucrative business and to do so without the user's knowledge or consent. Nullifying these rules after all the time it took to create and implement them gives companies explicit permission to do exactly what the rules protect against. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, a majority online privacy rights organization, describes it succinctly. Putting the interests of internet providers over internet users, Congress today voted to erase landmark broadband privacy protections. If the bill is signed into law, companies like Cox, Comcast, Time Warner, AT&T, and Verizon will have free reign to hijack your searches, sell your data, and hammer you with unwanted advertisements. Worst yet, consumers will not have to pay a privacy tax by relying on VPNs to safeguard their information. This is a poor substitute for legal protections. This change in rules means ISPs can profit off a captive consumer base twice, first by charging them for the service, and second by collecting data on what users do online and selling it to a third party. I'm concerned about their stewardship of the data, says Shana Devu, a former member of the DC intelligence community who now runs Community Red, a nonprofit that works on finding and providing secure technology tools for citizen reporters operating in journalism unfriendly places abroad. We still have to pay for their service for the most part, and a lot of the tools you'll have to use to safeguard your privacy and your security will slow your connection down. So then you have to upgrade your service and pay even more because ISPs are sucking your data out. At the same time, the information an ISP collect can collect has a lot more depth and specificity 
than what Google can glean just from searches or what Facebook can find from stuff users post to the social network. Wider availability of individuals' users' footsteps could leave them more vulnerable to security threats. Stealing personal information is much easier if all that data is aggregated, says Bob Gurney, co-founder of Cognito Corp, a firm that does security consulting and former chief technology officer of the Defense Intelligence Agency. The DIA is not a place you hear much about. They're, they're an interesting little organization. Just throwing that out there. Using advanced tracking tools, artificial intelligence, and botnets, a malicious actor could learn if an individual is going to be out of town at a certain time, explains Gordley. Similarly, act access to personal finance or medical information could help would-be criminals commit fraud later on. This is a great way to target people at Goes Don't You. It's your name, it's your address, it's got your latitude and longitude attached to your ISP address. From a counterintelligence perspective, that's a gold mine. The loss of online privacy could make it a lot easier for criminals to gain the trust of unsuspecting marks and then exploit that trust. The more information criminals can get about a person, Gordley says, the easier it is to use social engineering to manipulate them. To make matters worse for users, should the bill be signed into law, ISPs will no longer be required to disclose data breaches. That means people could have their information stolen from the company that collected it without their consent and not even know that that data theft took place. We put the entire responsibility of security on the users, says Delaview. Restoring consumer protections will likely take either legislative or legal action, which means waiting until the next Congress takes office in 2019 at the earliest, or hoping a privacy-relevant case works its way through the courts before then. Still, that doesn't mean that individual users are completely powerless to protect their own data. There are some steps a user can take to secure their privacy. Use a VPN. The best option is going to be using a VPN, a virtual private network, says Delaview. VPNs are tools installed on a user's device, like a phone or a laptop, that encrypt the traffic from that device and mask the user's IP address and online behavior from tracking tools. VPNs are already a standard security recommendation for anyone working over unsecured Wi-Fi, like what you might find in a coffee shop. But with ISPs now collecting data, and not just routing it, the workaround makes sense for home use as well. They also come in handy when you're trying to get TV streaming to work overseas. That's just a handy little tip for you process isn't without side effects. A two-round AVPN will slow down your ability to do anything, Delavue said, and it won't work for every site. You can have really fast connection speeds and wouldn't miss it so much, but streaming services like Netflix can detect VPN traffic and they won't let someone use the surface the service if they're running a VPN. Both Gordley and Delavue recommend VPNs both for security and user-friendly experiences. Gordley provided HideMyAss.com as an example of a good VPN he'd examined in the relatively low-cost average. If a user is willing to pay a, for a full year of access once, the rate is under $7 a month. Delaview suggests TunnelBear. I use that. The company is Toronto-based, which means it operates under Canadian laws, though just because a VPN provider is in a foreign jurisdiction, it won't work with the United States if governments are close. Delavue highlighted the low cost of TunnelBear as a positive feature, as well as the fact that the service lets a customer use the same VPN login across multiple devices. A VPN can protect against third parties seeing someone's traffic, but alone it can't protect against tracking cookies placed on user sites they visit or ISPs. Keep track of the cookies tracking you. Cookies are the bits of information that let sites remember users within a browser. Super cookies in comparison, or quantum cookies, which are even scarier. 
can track usage across multiple sites. For now, using super cookies without consent is a major no-no. Last spring, the FCC fined Verizon 1.35 million for using super cookies to track users without their knowledge or consent. With the new changes to FCC rules, companies would be free to track users online with impunity. If you use a VPN, you'll have a different IP address when you browse internet sites, said Gordley. They'll put the cookies on your browser to track your session, including super cookies that now your ISPs are going to be able to use. As a result, it's much easier to get a fuller use of a browser's actions, even as they navigate from site to site, regardless of whether a VPN is in use. Privacy Badger, talked about this before, is a browser extension from the EFF that blocks third-party tracking tools on websites. So it's one line of defense against tracking and super cookies that Delavue recommends. Ghostry is another tool for this, Throw through either a browser extension or mobile browser. And on browsers that offer it, privacy mode like privacy browsing in Firefox or incognito mode in Google Chrome offer a tiny bit of privacy, according to Gordley. What about Tor? <sighs> Tor, or the Onion Router, is a browser that's been around for over a decade. Yeah, thank you, Defense Department. And it's a regular feature in most security tool roundups. Tor is free, which is a popular trait. And there's a bit of clever premise at work. Tor routes traffic through lots of nodes or intermediate computers that are part of the Tor's network, making it unclear where a request started, ultimately delivering a user to a site they wanted to visit. Because it's been around for so long, Tor is an established target with security researchers and the FBI spending time cracking it, in part because people use Tor as a way to access illicit online black market sites Silk Road. There's more to it than that, but we'll go with that. I would, wouldn't recommend using Tor for various reasons. First and foremost, I don't think it makes a difference if you're sitting at your house connecting through Tor. The exit node, your home address, is always an issue because it does show up, says Dalavu. Plus, it's slow. In this situation, I think it would just make you look suspicious and slow you down, and it's not an incredibly reliable tool. Extra credit. Change your domain name service to protect against malware that gets through. When companies collect data on their users, they put that data at risk, whether through their own weak security or because someone with an ill intent. Sorry. May buy that information as step one, extract the information from a target. As a safeguard against this, Gordley recommends users setting up their own domain name service rather than using the one provided by ISP or the customer. DNS helps the browser translate human-friendly web addresses like popsci.com into computer-readable IP addresses. It's an essential piece of internet experience as we know it, but it can be an opportunity for deception. For instance, you could type a specific website into your browser, but put the DNS provided by the ISP could send you to a different and potentially malicious IP address with no indicator that something might be wrong. Consider the example of the old phone operator, broadly explained through metaphor. What if you were receiving a call from someone you do not know, and before connecting, the operator gets online with you and says, based on our historical records, the person calling you has a record of conducting fraud, and they are probably going to try to deceive you. That would have been a nice feature back in the day. If there's already malicious code on one of your devices, having a different DNS than the one provided by the ISP can prevent that malicious code from communicating back to the person who put it there. Gordley recommends several free tools people can use to configure their own DNS for their home, and some of them even come with straight forward walkthroughs. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Yeah, Tor is a product of the NSA. I mean, I, I wish that was the worst thing about Tor, but Tor is 
It's a product more than the NSI. Got it. I'm, I'm, I'm now stated. It's incredibly slow. Uh-huh. Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, yes. I mean, I think I talked about something last week, and I might I might just read it this week because I have had a chance to go through it. And um, what I find is truthful. I don't I don't read stuff to you guys that I don't bet you know that if I can't find if I can't find the truth in it and if I can't find evidence that it's been reported before if I can't find any of this stuff I don't tell you about it I don't just react and post I don't just react and talk I think it's really important to look at this stuff and to talk about it um, think about it before you put it out there because it just it just is not helpful to spread rumors when you can tell people the truth and I will stick this in the chat for people who didn't get a chance to see it last week <laughs> I'm making you all warm and fuzzy Margo can we go back to not answering the door no <laughs> okay almost everyone involved in the development of tour was or is funded by the U.S. government. The United States government can't simply run an anonymity system for everybody and then use it then for themselves only because then every time a connection came from people, it would say, oh, it's another CIA agent. If those are the only people using the network, Roger Dingale, co-founder of the Tor Network 2004. And it's a direct quote, and that should let you know where things are going from here. In July, hacker Jacob Applebaum and two other security experts published a blockbuster story in conjunction with the German press. This is not a news story. Okay. They had obtained leaked top secret NSA documents and source code showing that the surveillance agency had targeted and potentially penetrated the Tor network, a widely used privacy tool considered to be the holy grail of online anonymity. Internet privacy activists and organizations reacted to the news with shock. For the past decade, they have been promoting Tor as a scrappy but effective grassroots technology that can protect journalists, dissidents, and whistleblowers from powerful government forces that want to track their every move online. It was supposed to be the best tool out there. Tor has been an integral part of the EFF's surveillance self-defense privacy toolkit. Edward Snowden is apparently a big fan, and so is Glenn Greenwald, who says it allows people to surf without governments or secret services being able to, mo to monitor them. But the German expose showed Tor providing the opposite of anonymity. It singled out users for total NSA surveillance, potentially sucking up and recording everything they did online. To many in the privacy community, the NSA's attack on Tor was tantamount to high treason a fascist violation of a fundamental and sacred human right to privacy and free speech. The Electronic Frontier Foundation believes TOR to be essential to freedom of expression. Applebaum, a WikiLeaks volunteer and TOR developer, considered volunteering for TOR to be a valiant act on par with Hemingway or Orwell going to Spain to fight the Franco-fascists on the side of the anarchist revolutionaries. It's a nice story, pitting scrappy techno-anarchists against the all-powerful U.S. imperial machine, but the facts about Tor are not as clear-cut or as simple as those folks make it out to be. Let's start with the basics. Tor was developed and built and financed by the U.S. military surveillance complex. Tor's original and current purpose is to cloak the online identity of government agents and informants 
while they're in the field, gathering intelligence, setting up sting operations, giving human intelligent assets a way to report back to their handlers, that kind of thing. This information is out there, but it's not very well known, and it's certainly not emphasized by those who promote it. Peek under Tor's hood, and you quickly realize that just about everybody involved in developing Tor's technology has been and or still is funded by the Pentagon or related arm of the U.S. Empire. That includes Roger Dingable, who bought the technology to life under a series of military and federal government contracts. Daniel Dale even spent a summer working at the NSA. If you read the fine print on TOR's website, you'll see that TOR is very much in active use by the U.S. government. A branch of the U.S. Navy uses TOR for open source intelligence gathering, and one of its teams used TOR while deployed in the Middle East recently. Law enforcement uses for TOR for visiting or surveilling websites without leaving government IP addresses in their web logs and for security during sting operations. NSA, DOD, U.S. Navy, police surveillance? What the hell is going on? How is it possible that a privacy tool was created by the same military and intelligence agencies that it's supposed to guard us against? Is it a ruse, a sham, honey trap? Maybe I'm just being too paranoid. Unfortunately, this is not a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. It is a cold, hard fact. A brief history of TOR. The origins of TOR go back to 1995 when military scientists at the Naval Research Laboratory began developing cloaking technology that would prevent someone's activity on the internet from being traced back to them. They called it onion routing, a method of redirecting traffic into parallel peer-to-peer -peer network and bouncing it around randomly before sending it off to its final destination. The idea was to move it around so as to confuse and disconnect its origin and destination and make it impossible for someone to observe who you are or what you're doing on the internet. Onion routing was like a hustler playing the game of three-card money with your traffic. The guy trying to spy on you would watch it going under one card, but he never knew where it would come out. The technology was funded by the Office of Naval Research and DARPA. Early development was spearheaded by Paul Severson, Martin Reed, and David Goldschlag, all military mathematicians and computer system researchers working for the Naval Research Laboratory, sitting inside the massive Joint Base Anacosta Bowling military base in southeast Washington, D.C. The original goal of onion routing wasn't to protect privacy, or at least not in the way people think of privacy. The goal was to allow intelligence and military personnel to work online undercover without fear of being unmasked by someone monitoring their internet activity. As military-grade communication devices increasingly depend on the public communications infrastructure, it is important to use that infrastructure in ways that are resistant to traffic analysis. It may also be useful to communicate anonymously, for example, when gathering intelligence from public databases, explained a 1997 paper outlining an early version of onion routing that was published by the Naval Research Labs Review. In the 90s, I really need to take a drink, I'm sorry, this is very long, but no one's going to willingly read it because it's so long. I'll read it. I'll read it to you. Um, okay, in the 90s, as public internet use and internet internet infrastructure grew and multiplied spooks. That's not a word I picked, but you know, whatever. They need to figure out a way to hide their identity in plain sight online. An undercover spook sitting in a hotel room in a hostile country somewhere couldn't simply dial up CIA.gov on his browser and log in. Anyone sniffing his connection would know who he was. Nor could a military intel agent infiltrate a potential terrorist group masquerading as an online animal rights forum if he had to create an account and log in from an army base IP address. That's where onion routing came in. As Michael Reed, one of the inventors of onion routing, explained, providing cover for military and intelligence operations online was their primary objective. Everything else was secondary. 
the original question posted that led to the invention of onion routing was, can we build a system that allows for bidirectional communications over the internet where the source and destination cannot be determined by midpoint? Purpose was for DOD intelligent usage, open source intelligence gathering, covering of forward deployed assets, whatever. Not helping dissidents in their representative countries. Not assisting criminals in covering their electronic tracks. Not in helping BitTorrent users avoid MPAA, RIAA prosecution. Not giving a 10-year-old way to bypass an online anti-porn filter. Of course, we knew these would be other unavoidable uses for the technology, but that was immaterial to the problem at hand we were trying to solve. And if those uses were going to give us more cover traffic to better hide what we wanted to use the network for, all the better. I once told the flag officer that, much to his chagrin. Apparently, solving this problem wasn't very easy. Onion router research progressed slowly, with several versions being developed and discarded. But in 2002, seven years after it began, the project moved into a different and more active phase. Paul Silverson from the Naval Research Laboratory stayed on the project, but two new guys fresh out of MIT grad school came on board, Roger Dingledale and Nick Mathewson. They were not formally employed by the Naval Labs, but were on contract from DARPA and the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory Center for High Assurance Computer Systems. For the next several years, the three of them worked on a newer version of onion routing that would later become known as TOR. Very early on, researchers understood that just designing a system that only technologically anonymizes traffic is not enough, not if the system is used exclusively by the military and intelligence. In order to cloak spooks better, TOR needed to be used by a diverse group of people, activists, students, corporate researchers, soccer moms, journalists, drug dealers, hackers, child pornographers, foreign agents, terrorists, the more diverse groups that the spooks could hide in the crowd in plain sight. TOR also needed to be moved off-site and disassociated from naval research. As Silverson told Bloomberg in January 2014, if you have a system that's only a Navy system, anything popping out of it is obviously from the Navy. You need to have a network that carries traffic for other people as well. Diggledale said the same thing a decade earlier in 20, 2004 at the Wizard of Oz OS conference in Germany. The United States government can't simply run an anonymity system for everyone and then use it themselves only. Because then every time a connection came from it, people would say, oh, it's another CIA agent. If those are the only people using the network. The consumer version of Tor would be marketed to everyone and, equally important, would eventually allow anyone to run a Tor node slash relay, even from their desktop computer. The idea was to create a massive crowdsourced torrent-style network made up from thousands of volunteers all across the world. At the very end of 2004, with Tor technology finally ready for development, the U.S. Navy cut most of its Tor funding, released it under an open-source license, and oddly, the project was handed over to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We funded Roger Dingledale and Nick Matthewson to work on tour for single gear from 2004 in November to October 2005 for $1,800. We then served as a fiscal sponsor for the project until they got their 501c3 status over the next year or two. During that time, we took in less than $50,000 for the project, EFF's Dave Mass told me by email. In a December 2004 press release announcing its support for TOR, EFF curiously failed to mention that this anonymity tool was developed primarily for military and intelligence use. Instead, it focused on TOR's ability to protect free speech from oppressive regimes in the Internet age. The TOR project is a perfect fit for EFF because our primary goal is to protect the privacy and anonymity of all Internet users. TOR can help people exercise their First Amendment to be, to be free and use anonymous speech online. 
Later on, EFSF's online material began mentioning that Tor had been developed by the Naval Research Lab, but downplayed the connection, explaining that it was in the past. Meanwhile, the organization kept boosting and promoting Tor as a powerful efficiency tool. Your traffic is safer when you use Tor. Playing down Tor's ties to the military. People at the EFF weren't the only ones minimizing Tor's ties to the military. In 2005, Bard published what may have been the first major profile of Tor technology. The article was written by Kim Zetter and headlined Tor Torches Online Tracking. Although Zetter was a bit critical of Tor, she made it seem like the anonymity technology had been handed over by the military with no strings attached to two Boston-based programmers, Dingledale and Nick Mathewson, who had completely rebuilt the product and ran it independently. Dingledale and Mathewson might have been based in Boston, but they and Tor were hardly independent. At the time the Wired article went to press in 2005, both had been on the Pentagon payroll for at least three years. And they would continue to be on the federal government's payroll for at least another seven. In fact, in 2004, at the Wizard of OS conference in Germany, Dingledale proudly announced that he was building spy tech on the government payroll. I forgot to mention earlier something that will make you look at me in a new light. I contract for the United States government to build anonymity technology for them and deploy it. They don't think of it as anonymity technology, although we use that term. They think of it as security technology. They need these technologies so they can research people they're interested in, so they can have anonymous tip lines, so they can buy things from people without other countries knowing what they're buying, how much they are buying, and where it's going, that sort of thing. Government support kept rolling well after that. In 2006, Tor Research was funded through a no-bid federal contract awarding to Ding awarded to Dingledale's consulting company, Mariah Labs. And starting in 2007, the Pentagon cash came directly through the Tor project itself, thanks to the fact that Team Tor finally left EFF and registered its own independent 501c3 nonprofit. How dependent was and is Tor on support from federal government agencies like the Pentagon? In 2007, it appears that all of Tor's funding came from the federal government via two grants. A quarter million came from the International Broadcasting Bureau, a CIA spinoff that now operates under the Broadcasting Board of Governors. IBB runs Voice of America and Radio Marty, a propaganda outfit aimed at subverting uh, Cuba's communist regime. CIA supposedly cut IBB financing in 1970 after its ties to the Cold War propaganda arms like Radio Free Europe were exposed. The second chunk of cash, just under $100,000, came from Internews, an NGO aimed at funding and training dissident activists abroad. Her subsequent tax filings showed that grants from Internews were in fact conduits for pass-through grants from the U.S. State Department. This is why I really didn't want to read this shit. It makes me sound nuts. All this stuff can be verified, by the way. So, yeah. In 2008, Tor got $5,270 again from IBB and Internews, which meant that 90% of its funding came from U.S. government sources that year. In 2009, the federal government provided just over $900,000 or about 90% of the funding. Part of that cash came through $632,189 of a federal grant from the State Department, described in tax filings as a pass-through from Internews Network International. Another $270,000 came from the CIA spinoff IBB. The Swedish government gave $38,000, while Google gave a minuscule $29,000. Much of the government cash went out in the form of salaries to Tor administrators and developers. Tor co-founders Dingledale and Matthewson made $120,000. Jacob Ackenwald-Baum, the rock star hacker, WikiLeaks volunteer and Tor developer, made $96,000. In 
In 2010, the State Department upped its grant to $913,000, and IBB gave $180,000, which added up to nearly a million out of a total of 1.3 million total funds listed on tax filings that year. Again, a good chunk went out of salaries to tour developers and managers. In 2011, IBB gave $150,000, while another $730 came by Pentagon and State Department grants, which represented more than 70% of the grants that year. Although based on tax filings, contracts added up to nearly 100% of TOR's funding. The DOD grant was passed through the Stanford Research Institute cutting-edge Cold War military intel outfit. The Pentagon SRA grant was TOR, was given this destruction, um, description. Basic and applied research and development in areas related to naval command control, communications, computers, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. That year, a new government funder came on the scene, Swedish International Development Cooperative. Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency. Sweden's version of USAID gave TOR $279,000. In 2012, TOR nearly doubled its budget, taking in $2.2 million from the Pentagon and interconnected grants. $876,099 came from the DOD, $353,000 from the State Department, and $387,000 from the IBB. That same year, TOR lined up for an unknown amount of funding from the Broadcasting Board of Governors to finance fast exit notes. I can read the rest of this. Do I really need to? Not really. Use you, I2P. You, yeah, <laughs> you, you get why I'm suspicious of tour. Yeah. Right. I mean, Naturally. all this stuff is there. Um, I, I just find it sad. I, I just, I find it sad that people don't know about this. I, well, I mean, it it kind of all comes back and it comes full circle when you think that, you know, we're no longer people. We're mm -hmm. streams of revenue. We're ones and zeros. We're not names and we're not people anymore. Now we're revenue generating streams. Well, you kind of were the minute. Here's where I sound all crazy. Um, your tax information is a publicly traded thing, right? Yep. I mean, you know that, right? Your your birth certificate, yep. all that stuff about you is publicly traded on NASDAQ. So we've never been anything but a revenue stream for our government. And uh, I don't know how the UK does it. I'm kind of hoping they do it differently. Oh, Please. yeah. I mean, yeah. The Every government is a money-making scheme. Um, well, I mean, obviously. In some ways, dictators are just more more Honest? open about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, I stuck the article in there. There's pages more <laughs> to read. I think I read a good chunk of it, though. I mean, but I read yeah. about the money. The money is the important part. Following the money is the important part, and that's what I read to you. Yeah, I'll I'll say it again. Yeah, if you really need to use peer-to-peer -peer anonymizing networks, the only easy option available at the moment that works quite well is I2P. <laughs> yeah. Don't use Tor. Uh, there there are another couple of them, but they're a lot harder to use. <laughs> yeah, I, I I2P mean, I... is the only user-friendly option yeah i'm not i i just i've been suspicious of tour for a long time there's a reason for that there's a reason for all of that i think don't you 
yeah. I didn't just make this shit up on my own. Once you start looking where the money went, you've got to ask yourself, you know, really? <laughs> and people thought this made them safer. I mean, you know. Well, interestingly, yet some people have notably used the Tor network. Greenbaum and Snowden communicated mm -hmm. through it. But then yep. they were running further encryption. Yeah, I mean you, you through the Tor network. To, so not only was it being to. anonymized through Tor, they were further yeah. encrypting it themselves. Which um, you kinda have to. I mean I yeah. I mean you could just use Tor. I don't think I then, 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 an NSA definitely knows what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And well, as as Mister Silk Road discovered, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. really secure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can do anything you like on there. Honest, yeah. <laughs> Honest, Gov. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, this is kind of interesting to me because I don't do it often, but I do like Comic Cons, right? And one of the best part of going to a Comic-Con or going to a fancy dress party or going to a costume party is just the fact that you can dress up and not be yourself. Uh, unless you're in Virginia. <laughs> in which case, you better fucking be yourself and you better be identifiable. Oh, I thought I thought you were making a, a clan joke. Well, No. <laughs> <laughs> no, dressing like the Joker is a felony in Virginia. Although, you know, Wait, it, what? Yeah, a man no. made up. Yeah, a man made up to look like the Batman villain runs afoul of the state's anti-mask law. Last Friday, police in Winchester, Virginia, arrested a guy walking around dressed as the Joker. Yes, the Batman villain, and yes, that is illegal in Virginia. Jeremy Putman, 31, was charged with violating Virginia's anti-mask law, which makes it a class 6 felony punishable by 1 to 5 years in prison for any person over 16 years of age with the intent to conceal his identity, wearing mask, hood, or other device, whereby a substantial portion of the face is hidden or covered so as to conceal the identity of the wearer or to be or appear in any other place. According to police, Putman's joker makeup qualified. The law includes exceptions for people wearing traditional holiday costumes or engaged in any bona fide theatrical productions or a masquerade ball. So Putman would have been in the clear if he had done the same thing on Halloween, Jerome or Mardi Gras, or if he had been shooting a movie or performing a play. But dressing like the Joker just for the hell of it is a felony. At First Amendment. <laughs> yeah, okay. Winchester police say they received several calls about Putman and wanted to remind the community of the seriousness of the crime. But just because the penalties are serious does not mean that the crime is. In fact, what Putman did is a crime only because legislators made it so, since there is nothing inherently injurious about putting on white makeup and a black cape or a creepy clown mask, even if you do it on a day when no one else is wearing a costume. More than a dozen states have laws similar to Virginia's, many of which were enacted in response to the Ku Klux Klan, like the Guy Fox masks worn by Occupy Wall Street protesters. KKK masks are both a form of political expression and a way of protecting people who otherwise might be penalized for their views. 
Some courts, nevertheless, have ruled that the anti-mask laws are consistent with the First Amendment. There's a fucking shocker. Gee, you can de- you can depend on that third branch of government to really get behind you and protect you, huh? In the 1990s, the Georgia Supreme Court rejected a First Amendment challenge to that state's anti-mask law by a Klansman named Shade Miller. Finding that the statute was passed in response to a demonstrated need to safeguard the people of Georgia from terrorization by masked vigilantes. The court held that the interests served by the law are in no way related to the suppression of constitutionally protected expression and that the statute's incidental restriction on expression is de minimis in response to Miller's argument that the anti-mask law was unconstitutionally vague and overbroad. The court read it as applying to only mask-wearing conduct when the mask-wearer knows or is reasonably should know that the conduct provokes a reasonable apprehension of intimidation, threats, or violence. In 2004, three members of the U.S. Supreme Court for the Second Circuit, including future Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, heard a challenge to New York's anti-mask law by Jeffrey Berry, out of a KKK group known as the Church of Imperial Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. A federal judge had agreed with Barry that the New York mask ban violated his right to freedom of speech. The second court panel conducted that wearing a KKK regalia is kind of an expressive conduct, but deemed the mask redundant, saying it adds no expressive force to the message portrayed by the rest of the outfit. The appeals court also rejected the argument that the right to engage in anonymous political speech protects mask wearing at public rallies saying the individual's right to speech must always be balanced against the state's interest in safety and its right to regulate conduct that it legitimately considers potentially dangerous the guy was dressed up like the fucking joker yeah obviously wasn't the joker i mean come on but i don't think that's exactly what they had in mind when they wrote the law when they wrote the law, I'm pretty sure what they had in mind was, okay, you're going to put something over your face that's going to obscure your facial features, yep. like a Klansman's hood or you know, mm-hmm. a bank robbery mask or yeah. something of the like. But I can see this. Okay, so what about all the women who, and mm-hmm. not to say that I don't you know, have an issue with women wearing makeup, I don't, but some women need to dial it back a little. Um, that's obviously the same as you know this you know wearing this joker mask you know i mean it's not a mask it's it wasn't it's makeup i mean that's that's the thing i was gonna say i take it there aren't any clowns or mimes in virginia i guess you couldn't be one even if you fucking wanted to i guess if you're a mime they probably shoot you first. And those living I felt, statue I guys. I felt threatened. You know. I felt threatened. You know. You know what's you know what's going on in Virginia? Huh. Yeah, this should be interesting. <laughs> Dwight Schrute moved from Scranton to Virginia and somehow got elected their governor. Okay. From the office. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um I wish I knew why that was funny. I, when I tell you I, I have no, I don't watch TV. Like, I do what, podcasts. Oh, watch The Office. It's, yeah, you'll, after about five or six episodes, you get past the, this is not really funny, and you start to see the underlying humor of the fact that the dryness in the humor and the dark the blackness of British humor transposed yeah, to America. And I mean, 
Yes. And no offense, but the U.S. version knocked it out of the park. Ricky Gervais is okay, but oh, Steve no, no, no. Carell, he killed it. Yeah, but Ricky Gervais wrote the American version as well. <laughs> yes, he did. So there you go. He didn't star in it because they don't know him so well over there. But nah. he he retained creative control, which is unusual in TV these days. So basically, he wrote The Office about the bleak shittiness of working in the world today, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and oh my God, is it hilarious? They really extras need to is be- also quite good. <laughs> You know, the only thing I have that I can point to and say this adequately represents my workplace is the fucking movie Clerks. <laughs> that That is all I can point to and say, watch that. And what kills me is how many people that work in retail have not seen that movie. What about Superstore? Nah, Clerks comes closer to the absolute, like, just fucking horrible, crushing hatred you have for the place after a while. No, well, yeah, naturally. And they're supposed to be writing a part three to that. Yeah, Clerks 2 was pretty okay. Um, it needed to be in black and white. Really? Yeah, when they made it when they made it in color, it it killed some of the... Uh, it was that, that monochrome, drab, depressing oppressive it was the whole feel of it and when they made it color it just it livened it up <laughs> it livened it up i don't know yeah. if it livened it up but i i you know it's, the, it's the, the, the one, one movie notorious... that i think has most rep- most yeah. talked about you know donkey shows more than yeah. probably any other movie <laughs> i've seen <laughs> yes. yeah for for considering that that nothing happens in actuality in the film yeah, it's still amazing that they managed to get the rating they did. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying, I don't think I've ever heard it mentioned so much in my life. And you really don't, you don't really see anything. <coughs> I don't know. I know I all think... I can say is Kevin Smith must be brilliant at talking to these um, um... censors. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Smith probably goes in and gets some high first and then fucking distracts them. <laughs> And some of this shit's playing. Here, smoke some of this. It's okay. It's medical marijuana. <laughs> you know. Because, yeah, his, uh, that film especially it has. Well, that and Zack and Mira make a porno. Yeah, how they ended up I with the ratings they got, I don't know. <laughs> I can't believe that movie just, you know, got the movie. I, I agree with the rating it did. It was ridiculous. It was a good movie. I liked it. Yeah. I liked it much better than Jersey Girl, and if somebody tells me they like Jersey Girl, I'm gonna smack them. I don't like it, but it's not as it's not as bad as most people make out. It is. It, it's it's terrible. It, it's Ben Affleck. It's terrible. Mostly, ben Affleck is mostly. way too overexposed. He's just terrible. But Liv Tyler's no... good in it, and uh, George Carlin. George Carlin is. George Carlin was great in everything. That man had just just a great ability. For some to reason, talk about. due to the origin of bringing in George Carlin, I, I now have the image of his cameo in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back coming to mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, Good night, Jeremy. And, and the also the poor departed um, 
Um, our Princess Leia, she was in it as well. Straight after the George Carlin one. <laughs> Which just adds yeah. to the hilarity of that film. Um, yeah. Um, oh, God. Jay and Silent Bob strike back. Yeah. <laughs> I love that monkey! That, just, I, that's getting a sequel as well, apparently. Well, it it, it could use one. <laughs> yeah, no, George Carlin really did have a way of telling you what was going on and making you laugh about it. Whereas I really enjoyed Bill Hicks's comedy, but Bill Hicks had a way of telling you what was going on and then getting mad because you weren't really seeing it. I don't get mad about what people aren't really seeing anymore. It does no, it does no good. Um, so, and I don't really normally do this, but I guess I'm going to give you a book recommendation because I got so much out of it. It was so good. I think everybody knows that I listen to a podcast called Clandestine. I, I think people may have heard me mention it. It's about the CIA's involvement in the entertainment industry and, you know, military involvement in the entertainment industry. It's just fascinating stuff, right? Um, I just find it very enjoyable. Um, and... The man who does it does a really great job. His website is called spyculture.com. And one of the things he reviewed on spyculture.com was a book called The Writer with No Hands, right? And I'm going, well, this just sounds good. I mean, this has got, it's got the CIA involvement. It's got the entertainment industry. It's got the death of a screenwriter, um, you know Claudia Christensen from Babylon 5? Yes. Her ex-husband. This is about her ex-husband and how he died. And it, it's just really fascinating. So this author from the UK starts investigating this. And he's finding like a whole lot of just really interesting stuff. And they've made, you know, films about it. And it, it's terribly interesting. And you get to this part where he followed this stuff all the way to the end of what he could find. And he's a little older. His kids are a little older. He's starting to get his life together. And he gets to the point where he realizes you can know everything there is to know. And you can shout it from the rooftops. But one man can't change everything. And sometimes the best thing you can do is take care of you and those you love. Um, and I, I really, I got a lot from the book. The book was really great I, I really do recommend this book um and the writer's name is matthew alford um matthew alford has also done a whole lot of writing and work on the cia's involvement in the entertainment industry and it's really funny to see what a big part they had in say advising the Avengers films and making substantive changes to shows like fucking Top Chef. Top Chef. Why is the CIA involved with Top Chef at all? Don't know. It just is. You know, I just find this stuff interesting. Where you think you're getting pure entertainment, you're not. You're still getting propaganda thrown at you. Yeah, I mean, the, the involvement the CIA has, I mean, it, I just keep thinking of Stan Smith. <laughs> and all the stuff he gets up to. Because, um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it seems to be it seems to be quite realistic when you look at some of the things the CIA gets up to. Yeah, well, except for the bumbling that, that, idiot that's, part. That's a reference to American to Dad, American Dad. If anybody hasn't seen it, that's a great show. That is actually. I mean, if I'm going to watch TV, I like to think so. I do like American Dad. I think that's a good good series, and it is quite funny. And Sir Patrick Stewart is great in it. Yes. It's amazing. You know, the, the, the creepiest, a- the creepiest boss to ever have existed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is something really wrong with him. It's really good stuff, though. It really yes. is worth. It's worth sitting there and binge watching it. And I don't watch a whole lot of TV. I think I watch. Um, well, I only watch a couple of things really. I did watch The Big Bang Theory till it got so terrible I couldn't fucking stand it anymore. So. Now I'm doing without that. I don't understand why it's still on the fucking air. It's so bad. Well, I stopped watching. Uh, I think I only made it to towards the end of season two because it wa- It's like yeah, yeah it's. it's I mean, just it, the same was, stuff over and over again. Right, but it was a series you could watch it, it pick up at any point and just watch it, and it, yeah. it just it was funny. Um, because we all know people who have autism spectrum disorder, so it's kind of funny seeing those people in social situations, even though they might not be super well, realistic. Since, since I did computing science and mathematics originally, uh, you saw all those people I in know, real life. Um, <laughs> basically, is is like that. Yeah. Yeah. I hung out um, with the geeks. <laughs> I hung out with everybody, so you know I got a nice mix of being around everybody, but. Um, yeah, I, I was yeah, the, I was on the, the edge. I was on the edge of the geeks because you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I used to cycle and canoe and all outdoor activities as well, so they mm-hmm. thought I was a bit odd. <laughs> the the <laughs> I was only a other thing. Geek. <laughs> the only other thing I really watch is Mr. Robot. Yeah, I really like that show. Um, I just do. I think it's I think it's really well done and. You know, I just find it interesting as hell. Um, and I get it's eight thirty. That's really. I thought it was much later. I figured with my, you know, screaming yeah, and rambling. Twenty-two minutes left, according to the clock. <laughs> um. So, let's see. What? Uh, I don't care about that. Uh, don't so much care about the anti-riot vehicle, but you should see it. So here is a video of the anti-riot vehicle. Oh, is that one with the fold-out screen? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Saw that. That's that's interesting to look at. That's a little um, one. Yeah, it's not very big, but um, they are going to use it on people. Yeah. Um, Windows 10 got taken to court for... Again, yeah, it keeps <laughs> it keeps fucking getting taken to court. Uh, Windows 10 destroyed our data. Microsoft hauled into U.S. court. Updated three people in Illinois have filed a lawsuit against Microsoft, claiming Windows 10 update destroyed their data and damaged their computers. The complaint. PDF filed in Chicago's U.S. District Court on Tuesday charges Microsoft Windows 10 as a defective product and its maker failed to provide adequate warning about potential risks posed by Windows 10 installations, specifically system stability and data loss. 
Microsoft failed to exercise reasonable care in designing, formulating, and manufacturing the Windows 10 upgrade and placing it into the stream of commerce, the company claims, the complainant claims. As a result of its failure to exercise reasonable care, the company distributed an operating system that was liable to cause loss of data or damage to hardware. The attorneys representing the trio are seeking to have the case certified as a class action that includes every person in the U.S. who upgraded to Windows 10 from Windows 7 and suffered data loss or damage to software hardware within 30 days of installation. They claim that there are hundreds or thousands of affected individuals. The complaint enumerates a number of alleged problems with the way Windows 10 update presents itself to Windows users, noting that it often installs itself without any action being taken by the consumer. Microsoft recently changed its Windows update behavior to allow for more user input. Prior to the creator's update, Windows 10 made most of the decisions for you regarding when updates would be installed and didn't provide any ways to tailor the timing to your specific needs, wrote John Cable, Director of Program Management in the Windows Servicing and Delivery team in a blog post earlier this month. We heard back most explicitly that what you wanted was more control over when Windows 10 installs updates. According to the complaint, Windows 10 installed itself onto a plaintiff Stephanie Watson's computer without her consent and then erased data, some of it related to her work. She hired Geek Squad to repair the machine with only partial success and ended up having to purchase a new computer. Plaintiff Robert Steger, the complaint said, consented to Windows 10 update only to have his computer stop functioning. He lost data, lost time, and money while incurring aggravation attempting to recover data. Plaintiff Howard Goldberg had elected to accept Windows 10 after declining over six months of daily prompts, requesting him to download it after three attempts to do so. Result it was a non-functioning computer and lost data. Last June, a California woman won $10,000 after Windows 10 update disabled her PC. In September, UK-based consumer group, which noted that Windows 10 updates were being deployed without consent, despite Microsoft's insistence that users have a say in the matter. Microsoft was able to add a comment at the time of publication of data to add. Microsoft doesn't think much of the lawsuit. Windows 10 free upgrade program was a choice designed to help people take advantage of the most secure and the most productive Windows. A Microsoft spokesperson sent an email to the register. Customers had the option not to upgrade to 10. If a customer who upgraded during the one-year program needed help with the upgrade experience, we had numerous options, including free consumer report and 31 days to roll back to their old operating system. We believe the plaintiff's claims are without merit. Really? Yeah, yeah. The the change to their update algorithm, <laughs> that's in direct response by the amount of court cases going on worldwide. Yeah. It's got no bugger all to do with, we've listened to the customer feedback, it's like, no, no. Yeah. It's because they keep getting sued. Yeah. You just found out about the intercepted, uh, Thomas? Thomas? Because there's a whole lot of magazines and publications out there that are doing this there's actually a website you can go to the the intercepted was one of the first um where these magazines because people aren't reading them anymore they're doing things like we're doing here they're doing that in a larger format for their magazines i forget the name of the website but there's a bunch of them omni and science and a whole bunch of magazines are doing the same things yeah Um, and 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna mention it again because it's important. Okay. If you're a Windows 10 user, you need to be using Spybot Anti Beacon. Yeah, that's great stuff. That it destroys all their ability all the to use shit. telemetry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, no, and you're it's not basically late. it's basically one click. Uh, yeah, and, and it's it great. Just, and if Windows updates, if you've installed Spybot properly, and tell it to start with Windows, and yep. it'll always rerun itself every time there's yep. an update to yep. re-enable all the blocks. Yeah, and that saves you doing all the more technical ways of blocking things on your computer. Yeah, it's which I great. get up to in the registry and other places. And it, um, and it, it works. It works. It just works. I mean, it just works. I can't understand why it's such a big deal, but it just works really, really well. Well, for instance, all the malicious, um, all the malicious stuff that we've talked about tonight, ISPs logging and people getting hold of fragments of code and all that kind of thing, and you mm -hmm. know, your DNS routing you to dodgy sites. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's software out there, I don't have links on hand, mm -hmm. that'll let you edit. Most people don't realize this even exists. Right. Your computer has a blacklist on it. Mm -hmm. In It's hidden from most users. But there's a little, basically a text file, and you can just list all the websites you don't want communicating with your computer. Um, and there's software, freeware, you can download mm -hmm. that runs a little batch file that adds all the dodgy sites to yep. that blacklist so your computer can't mm -hmm. get contacted by any of those websites. Yep. Spybot does a bit of that, but yeah. Mm -hmm. It's good shit. It oh, really yeah. is. But yeah, any, I'm, I'm old school. I occasionally manually go in and add sites to the list. So it's um, like, I really don't like that site. I don't want to talk to it anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gone. Yeah. I'll never see you again. I mean, you, you also use I, I, I mainly use it for blocking advertising. It must be said. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you also use Facebook Purity, so you don't see any of those ads. No, I don't see ads on my computer at all. <laughs> I, I have them blocked at source. So yeah. yeah. I can't recommend enough Privacy Badger by EFF. Whatever... Whatever else you might say about EFF and their their questionable associations with um, people, that is a great thing. Uh, I really didn't recommend it for a long time. You know I didn't recommend it for a long time because I was like, well, there's no need. It's so hard to get through the learning curve and stuff. But now that they're really going to start sticking it to us with the advertising... I recommend Privacy Badger probably more than anything else. I recommend recommend well, I say I, 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 I don't use Privacy Badger, but that's because I use other things. Yeah. <laughs> um, as I say, I know how to block the actual servers the adverts are coming from. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and Jeremy Scahill does the Intercepted podcasts, I believe. But The Intercept also has some of their stories daily coming down. The really important ones, people are going through and reading them out loud so that the information is actually getting out there. Kind of like what we do here. The only reason I'm reading any of this stuff out loud is because you guys need to know it. Right? It's important. Did anybody know that the Second Amendment just 
invalidated the Fourth Amendment protections you had in your home? I didn't. I didn't until I found it out. I bet yep. you didn't. If, if I you mean, weren't worried about twitchy cops before, be really worried by them now. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, there's a whole host of things you have to do to look out for you. And the biggest thing you can do is be knowledgeable. Yeah. That's what we try to do here. That's what we've tried to do um, for 200 episodes now. I think we're, uh, we're making a dent somewhere. <laughs> I'm happy about that. If five people hear it, it's a good well, thing. We're possibly keeping one, two NSA guys really busy. Having to listen yeah. to the episodes. I'm, um, I'm, sh- I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're sick of reading. More like, oh, yellow God. cake. Yeah. Yeah. More yellow cake. Oh God! It's more shit from the interest. Jesus! I, I, I didn't I, want to hear about Tor. I, I, I won't. I won't talk about thermite on planes again. Uh. <laughs> Honest, God. <laughs> Well, TSA yeah. is such a joke. <laughs> they are really terrible. I mean, what they did this week with that autistic child who's like non-functional. Yeah. They were they sent that poor kid into a tailspin, and they're like, "Well, we explained what we we're going to do." Yeah, he's four. You fucking perverts. Well, I mean, you know it's bad when even Google and Amazon are keeping any of their foreign national staff either abroad and don't bring them into the US for meetings or right. if they're based in the US they don't let them leave in case they don't get back yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's everything that's gone on this week has given me a headache the biggest thing i think you needed to be worried about was your privacy um the other thing i can tell you is we're at the point now with you you're taking a phone to the airport fucking don't yeah don't take your goddamn phone to the airport or if you do go to kmart or walmart go get one of them twenty dollar phones (laughs) go get yourself a fucking flip phone yeah that you just have phone numbers in and nothing else because if you don't have a phone you're going to be um subject to extra scrutiny but keep the very minimal stuff on it that you possibly can. No apps, I, I am go- no I'm going email, to bet, none of that stuff. I'm going to bet there's going to be a spate of stories quite soon about TSA agents trying to get information off phones and arresting people, and then we find out it's because it's the rebooted 3310 and it isn't a smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't have data on it, apart from phone well, numbers. I mean, and and that's the thing. If you get something really basic, there's nothing they can do with it. Yeah. The easiest way in a lot of ways to protect your privacy is to go back to basics. Snail mail, buying stuff through the mail, not doing it online. Although we know that the U.S. mail intercepts packages and does things to them. Well. Yeah, I mean, still the, seems pretty scary. The, the best amusement I have is I occasionally send John stuff, folks. Um, <laughs> is watching USPS and its tracking, because right, I one thing I sent. Oh no, it wasn't to John. This was to Evolve actually. <laughs> I I had to send a DNA two hundred back, and both. Both trips, there and back, 
What took the longest amount of time of the journey? Yeah, yeah, it was going from one building in the airport <laughs> to another. To another. <laughs> Literally from the USPS International Office across to the to the domestic yes, domestic delivery office. Yeah. Literally four days. <laughs> The parcel. And if you look, and it, it took if four you days look at the for map, the parcel to move fifty one, meters. I mean, and the best part is, if you look at it on Google Earth, you can see it. Yeah. I mean, the buildings are you, next to each other. It's like you could have opened the door in one and thrown it at the other one, and <laughs> would have got there a lot faster. So, I mean, the the whole turnaround for me sending it and getting it back was two weeks, but eight <laughs> days of that two weeks was because it was sitting in that one building. <laughs> it's Amazing, like... isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Although, I... yeah, some some of the routing, uh, the last package I sent you, mm -hmm. it took 24 hours to get from the East Coast to Florida. Mm -hmm. And then it sat and it got to your <coughs> nearest main office. And sat there for two days before they, they sent it to your local office for delivery. Yet again, just... what are they doing? <laughs> yeah. It's like two days. It didn't move. You're like... Yep. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the old ways are going to be the ways that we're going to have to rely on for privacy. Uh, I think the old ways are probably the best ways to get your food at this point. So, you know, newer is not necessarily better. See, see, people in Yorkshire and quite quite large parts of working class Britain are prepared for the technology bite back. You're saying going back to older ways. Mm -hmm. Racing pigeons are still hugely popular <laughs> in the UK. Carrier pigeons, <laughs> those, my those God. Those people will be fine when those. communications break down. Yeah. You know, every time I open up and like look at the news and like how can I get more dystopian um and then I see something really really amazing like they just found out that the lungs are highly involved in making blood in your body they didn't know that that's amazing yeah. you know so there's trade-offs um your, your stomach your stomach is almost a second brain yeah that's how exactly. complicated it is yeah the whole human body is like this vast miracle. And it's neat the things we're finding out about it. I love the internet and yet I'm scared of what it's going to bring me. <laughs> so I use it cautiously like I would um like I would uh, I don't know, hooker with an STD. I don't know. You just don't do that shit bareback. You can always protect yourself. Um that's the best takeaway. Just try to keep your stuff safe. Don't let them fuck with you too much. You can do it. It's not hard. And we'll keep talking about it. Because it matters. Your privacy still matters. And I don't know. I, I don't know what to take away from all this except um, yeah. That's about it. Oh, yeah, you're doing potatoes in a bag. You're growing potatoes in a bag. It's amazing how many potatoes you can get out of one potato. 
You can get 50 to 100 pounds out of one potato if you do it right. Now, and they like growing up, so old tires are a neat way to do it. You know, filled with soil. They love that. And, and, and don't take, don't, don't go with what you see in the Martian too, too much. God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> yeah. I didn't mean to give anybody nightmares. I think we're going to get past whatever this ridiculousness is and we'll get to a better place. We will. I mean, the internet was that last weirdly free place and it will be again. I believe that. It kind of still is. You just have to be yeah. careful. That's it. You know, there are things you can do to protect yourself. I've listed some. We'll talk about some. We'll find more. Um, that's what we do. I guess. Seemed like. So, your privacy still matters to me and to you. And that's why you're listening. And thank you for listening to me for hundreds of shows. It's appreciated. Um, this show will be up later on tonight at antinanny.com. That is my website. We simulcast it here through VP Live, and VP Live puts it up. But if you want the replay or the show notes, you can go to antinanny.com, and it will be there, and it will be episode 0200. Wow. Um, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, so music and advert, I think. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Good night, you guys. Thanks for listening. Hopefully, we'll do 200 more of these. Good night.